0: Blob Talk Radio.
1: Son of a bitch. Welcome to the show, everybody. I got a wonderful one for you today. Uh, I'm going to update you on what's going on in Russia and Ukraine. Really interesting stuff on that front. Uh, I also have a new poll on um, Biden and Trump and how voters have turned on them. Voters are not buying what they're selling anymore. Both of them. Really fascinating. Uh, Wait until you see the one on Trump. There's really, like, the poison pill is, without a doubt, um, inside this poll. So you're not going to want to miss this. We have uh, royal family goons. Prince Andrew is paying out quite a bit of money for something he says he didn't do. (laughs) Of course, I'm referring to an Epstein victim case. We'll talk about that. Anthony Weiner is back in the news. The Canadian truckers are... uh, Still doing their thing, and there's been, in my opinion, a gigantic overreach from the Canadian government. We'll talk about that. Novak Djokovic uh, has spoken out for the first time since the whole vaccine scandal and him not playing in the Australian Open. And uh, I got a lot more. Charlie Kirk is later on in the show. Um, We have James Lindsay. I don't know if I've ever covered a story on James Lindsay yet. But this guy, his whole brand is like anti-woke. And uh, he went on Glenn Beck's show and gave us one of the most glorious uh, word salad clips I've ever seen in my life. We'll talk about that and much more. I also have incredibly substantive stuff like uh, coal miners eviscerating Joe Manchin. And uh, truckers are basically indentured servants. And there are some truckers who have decided, you know what, enough of this. We're going to unionize. So we'll talk about that and much more. Without further ado, let's go ahead and get started. And I'll do that with an update on Russia and Ukraine. So there's been quite a few updates in regards to Russia and Ukraine. Um, President Biden came out and gave a speech on it. I'm going to show you a a little clip of that speech in a second. Now, I recommend you go and watch the entire speech because I really think he covers all of his bases. Like, he sort of gives every single opinion at once. I mean, it's kind of contradictory in some sense, but uh, I'm going to show you – the part that I found most interesting. But to me, the, the bigger angle in this story is actually not what's going on in Russia and Ukraine. It's the thousand and one ways that U.S. media has shit the bed and jumped the shark while attempting to cover this. Um, honestly, it's some of the worst coverage I've ever seen in my life. They've been demonstrably wrong verifiably and provably wrong at a number of different times and of course there's been no accountability for because there ever there never is for mainstream media organizations so first like i said let's jump to the biden clip the
2: united states and nato are not a threat to russia ukraine is not threatening russia neither the u.s nor nato have missiles in ukraine we do not do not have plans to put them there as well we're not targeting the people of russia We do not seek to destabilize Russia. To the citizens of Russia, you are not our enemy. And I do not believe you want a bloody, destructive war against Ukraine, a country and a people with whom you share such deep ties of family, history, and culture. Seventy-seven years ago, our people fought and sacrificed side by side to end the worst war in history. World War II was a war of necessity. But if Russia attacks Ukraine, it would be a war of choice, or a war without cause or reason. I say these things not to provoke, but to speak the truth, because the truth matters, accountability matters. If Russia does invade in the days and weeks ahead, the human cost for Ukraine will be immense, and the strategic cost for Russia will also be immense. If Russia attacks Ukraine, it will be met with overwhelming international condemnation. The world will not forget that Russia chose needless death and destruction. Invading Ukraine will prove to be a self-inflicted wound united states and our allies and partners will respond decisively the west is united and galvanized today our nato allies and the alliance is as unified and determined as it has ever been and the source of our unbreakable strength continues to be the power resilience and universal appeal of our shared democratic values because this is about more than just russia and ukraine it's about standing for what we believe in for the future we want for our world for liberty for liberty the right of countless countries to choose their own destiny and the right of people to determine their own futures for the principle that a country can't change its neighbor's borders by force. That's our vision. And to that end, I'm confident that vision, that freedom will prevail. Reversion proceeds. We will rally the world to oppose this aggression. The United States and our allies and partners around the world are ready to impose powerful sanctions on export controls, including actions that did not, we did not pursue when Russia invaded Crimea in eastern Ukraine in 2014. We put intense pressure on their largest and most significant financial institutions and key industries. These measures are ready to go as soon as if Russia moves. We'll impose long-term consequences, we'll undermine Russia's ability to compete economically and strategically. And when it comes to Nord Stream 2, the pipeline that would bring natural gas from Russia to Germany, if Russia further invades Ukraine, it will not happen. While well, I will not send American servicemen to fight in Ukraine, we have supplied the Ukrainian military and equipment to help them defend themselves. we provided training and advice and intelligence for the same purpose. And make no mistake, the United States will defend every inch of NATO territory with the full force of American power. An attack against one NATO country is an attack against all of us. And the United States' commitment to Article 5 is sacrosanct. Two paths are still open. For the sake of historic responsibility, Russia and the United States share for global stability, for the sake of our common future, to choose diplomacy. But let there be no doubt. If Russia commits this breach by invading Ukraine, responsible nations around the world will not hesitate to respond. We do not stand for freedom. Where it is at risk today will surely pay a steeper price tomorrow.
1: All right, so there you have it. Now, the obvious hypocrisies are clear when he says, like, we stand for liberty, the right of countries to choose uh, their own destiny. And when he said uh, that thing at the end there, that's just our talk. We don't really believe that. The United States arms and funds and props up 73% of the world's dictatorships. In the global South, we overthrow democratic governments all the time and put in our own puppet dictators. So this idea that, like, we're committed to human rights and democracy and nation sovereignty, it's just not true. Like, that's just factually wrong. And so, of course, it seems absurd when we lecture anybody else when they violate uh, these things that are supposed to be norms and rules. Now, that doesn't mean it's okay when Russia does it. When Russia does it, it's bad, too. (laughs) Sovereign countries are sovereign, and they should be respected as such. But this is part of the problem when you – Blow any legitimacy you have because you wantonly violate international law on a Tuesday before brunch. Y- your word doesn't carry any weight when you say this stuff. Now, the hypocrisy never stopped the U.S. before. It's not going to stop us now. We're just going to plow forward and act like there is no hypocrisy. But look, outside of the obvious points here, uh, what does Biden stress? Now, again, watch the whole clip because he says almost everything under the sun in regards to this conflict in a, like a short 10 or 11-minute speech. But he he leans on diplomacy and negotiation. He says the Russian people are not our enemy. uh, He says the things that are on the table, sanction oligarchs. Actually, he might go a little further because he says sanction industry too. I would have no problem with sanctioning the oligarchs. Uh, Industry is a different question. That seems more broad than just the oligarchs. And once you uh, do sanctions like that, you're going to hurt Russian civilians. And so I'm not okay at all with hurting Russian civilians. Uh, I am okay if Russia goes down this path of hurting the oligarchs. So there's a little bit of a distinction and a dichotomy there. I'm not sure exactly which path Biden would pick or how he would walk that line, um, but he says sanction industry. That's a little bit of an overreach. I would just say the oligarchs, if there's a way you can do it, where you target the oligarchs without uh, hurting the citizens. He brings up Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Um, This is an area where I agree with Biden, Trump actually was more hawkish on this and refused to approve the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which is the uh, Germany and Russia pipeline. Russia would send their natural gas to Germany. Uh, Trump was against it, which is kind of hilarious that he was called Putin's puppet since he was against that pipeline uh, and wouldn't allow them to, to continue with it. Biden has allowed it, but he's saying, look, that's on the table. If you invade Ukraine, we're just, there is no more Nord Stream 2 pipeline. And it looks like he's going with an idea that I floated too, which is, not saying he got it from me. He didn't. But you basically sell U.S. natural gas to Germany at the same price they would have got from Russia. So you undercut them. And even if you sell it at a loss, okay, just subsidize it and call it a day. Uh, so it looks like that's on the table. He says, I'm not going to send American servicemen. That's contradictory. They are kind of sending American servicemen. They've already sent a couple thousand. Uh, granted, you could say given the scale of how many Russian troops were on the border, that that's not that many. But, you know, it is, he's not correct say we're not sending American servicemen. I actually wouldn't send American servicemen. But then the other thing is, look, yes, if you arm Ukraine, that is viewed by Russia as an act of aggression by the West, and it's viewed as an offensive action from the West. But, um, look, a sovereign country is a sovereign country, and if they want weapons nominally to defend themselves, there's, you can't really oppose that. Now, there's a, a, there's a bigger problem, though, which is some percentage of, the Ukrainian fighters are card-carrying neo-Nazis. The Azov Battalion, which is officially part of the Ukrainian government, which they admit up to you know, 20% of them are Nazis. Uh, I think the number is actually higher than that. That's just what they admit. And there, there was even a scandal over this in the U.S. about funding them, where we revoked their funding because they're Nazis, and then when nobody was looking, we allowed the funding to go back. So if you're going to arm them, which, again, I understand a sovereign nation wanting to defend itself, you definitely can't arm the Nazis. <laughs> like, arming the Nazis is a bad idea, full stop. Don't arm Nazis. This shouldn't be controversial to say. Uh, now, and then, of course, the other thing he says is, if Russia attacks NATO, it's all like Donkey Kong. So, like, don't you dare attack any NATO country. Ukraine's not in NATO, so it's a little bit of a different story, which is one of the reasons why it's such a scandal. There's not as much of a united front in responding to it, but he says if you attack a NATO country, it's all like Donkey Kong. Okay, now, to get to the, actually, the meat of the story, in my opinion. It's actually the media and the way the media has been acting in the West. It is the most abysmal display I've ever seen, probably since the build-up to the Iraq War. I think honestly, what we've seen is even worse than RussiaGate. It's even worse than pushing for the other interventions like in Libya and Syria. So, story the other day came out. Now we're talking what about a week ago or so. I think it was Bloomberg, maybe a couple others. They just they ran headlines. Russia is invading Ukraine, like like they're doing it now, right now. Okay, they didn't. They didn't do it. Yes, there's a buildup of troops on the border. You can condemn that all you want. But they ran headlines and wrote articles saying, Russia is currently invading Ukraine right now. You might want to be a little careful when we're dealing with a nuclear armed power waging a war. And we're, of course, a nuclear armed power. And there's like a proxy war going on with us. And you're just going to run the head up. You might want to fact check that one, Dippy. You might want to make sure, just double-check, get a couple sources. Don't have anonymous sources for such things. But they just ran the headline. Russia is invading Ukraine. Are you kidding me? Now, you would think that after that incredible debacle, incredible debacle, there were a number of outlets that ran that, that they'd be like, oh, man, we got to reel it in a little bit, because this might be perceived as us spewing misinformation or disinformation. No, no, there's no accountability for the mainstream media outlets. You know this. I know this. They're viewed as definitionally trustworthy even if they're objectively not. So then what happens? A few days after that, we get headlines. The invasion is going to happen on Wednesday. Wednesday as in today, the day I'm talking to you. What? Oh, you know, the invasion is definitely happening Wednesday, and we know because the Ukrainian president said it. And so all the headlines, so many media outlets ran with this one. Russia to invade Ukraine on Wednesday. Well, come to find out, it was a mistranslation. So the Russian, or excuse me, the Ukrainian president was giving a speech and talking about the crisis, and he basically said, he made a joke, something along the lines of, well, the media is telling me that the invasion is going to happen Wednesday. Idiot Western media outlets took it and ran with it as if it was factual and Russia was actually going to invade Ukraine on Wednesday. I cannot imagine a situation with higher stakes where you can't get it wrong and almost the entire media got it wrong. I can't imagine that. But they did. They got it wrong. Now, again, I want you to stop and think about this. All of the -the over-the-top outrage over Joe Rogan's use of the N-word in context where he's talking about the word, not using the word and calling people the word. And, you know, the prodding Spotify to, like, get him off your platform, get this guy out of the public consciousness, just ban him somehow, anyhow. Because, look, he's spreading misinformation and disinformation, whether it's the N-word or the COVID vaccine stuff. These guys are playing fast and loose and reckless with war involving a nuclear armed power. They're playing fast and loose and reckless with World War III. Cannot get something like that wrong. You just can't. The stakes are beyond high. Could you imagine if you're the reporter and you see the headline and you hear through the great fight, oh, Russia's invading Ukraine. An uh, anonymous source told me or this thing told me. Wouldn't you pause a second and be like, well, I want to make sure I get this one right before I run the headline and write an article and make an ass of myself. They didn't think that way. Mainstream media didn't think that way. Because they have groupthink. And all they do is conventional wisdom bullshit. And so that fits the narrative. The narrative in the West is, of course, Russia bad, Russia evil, Russia terrible. And so they just ran it. Now, I would say it gets worse, but nothing is worse than getting this wrong. But there is something else that happened. Richard Engel of, I think it's NBC News, he did a piece, which was a total puff piece, on The Azov Battalion, those people I just mentioned who are card-carrying neo-Nazis who are fighters for Ukraine. I get it. I just told you it's a complex situation. A sovereign nation has a right to defend itself against an aggressor. So, of course, Ukraine has the right to have weapons and defend itself if Russia invades. Of course, absolutely. But that doesn't mean you get to do a puff piece on a neo-Nazi faction of the Ukrainian forces. And that's what they did. Now, you're telling me that's not misinformation and that's not disinformation to portray this group as, you know, all puppies and rainbows and holding hands and singing kumbaya and fighting the good fight? Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? The number of ways in which the media has screwed this up is legendary. It's the worst I've seen since the Iraq war. It's, it's worse than Russiagate. It's worse than Syria and Libya. They just... Time after time after time, day after day, everything, dead wrong. And like I said, you know, nobody's going to stop and and really digest this and understand. Wow, the whole conversation about banning or censoring or deplatforming alternative and independent media outlets seems kind of silly now, doesn't it? Because I could do this show for 40 years and never get anything as wrong with as high of stakes and as high of consequences as these guys got wrong this week all of the major outlets. So I don't want to hear it. I don't, I don't want to hear the conversation anymore at all, ever, ever, about, like, alternative media, new media, and independent media at all. Oh, they're problematic. Maybe we should bury them in the algorithm or censor them or deplatform them. Let's talk about this for 10 weeks straight. I don't want to hear it. The mainstream outlets are way, 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 way worse, and it's not even close. How do you get these things wrong as wrong as they have? it's unbelievable. Now, I want to end, end the segment with you uh, giving you what's actually going on in Russia and Ukraine at the moment, according to all the information that we have. So there's a guy by the name of Clint uh, Ehrlich. And Clint Ehrlich, has, he's been featured in uh, foreign Policy magazine, <clears throat> excuse me, Foreign Policy Magazine, Washington Post, Fox News, BBC, Dateline, NBC. He's a little bit of a heterodox voice on these issues, but he had a tweet thread on this, which really caught my eye. It's interesting. It's interesting. It's thoughtful. So he says the following. And you listen to every, every line here, because I think it's all equally important. He says, I'll put my reputation on the line. There is now zero chance that Russia suddenly invades Ukraine. It doesn't mean the crisis is over. Far from it. But the sudden invasion scenario is off the table. Here's why. He says, today, Russia claimed that it began withdrawing forces after the completion of drills around Ukraine. This has been disputed by NATO, who argues that the Russians have not meaningfully drawn down their troop numbers. In theory, a sudden attack remains viable. In reality, Russia's current expenditures of diplomatic capital make that implausible. Spokeswoman Maria Zakharova said today, quote, will go down in history as the day Western war propaganda failed. She said the West has been, quote, shamed and destroyed without firing a single shot. So in other words, his argument, at least to this point, and we'll continue with the thread in a second, but his argument is like, what Russia did here, they claimed all along, like, this is just a defensive posture, and we're just doing, like, our own war games, because you guys keep doing war games on our border, so we're going to do the same, you know, on, on the Ukrainian border, and basically Western media was baited into the sky is falling scenario, lying, getting things dead wrong, and... Russia's basically doing a victory lap after that and saying, look at these guys. Look how warmongering they are and how hawkish they are, and they're destroying all their credibility. We didn't even have to fire a shot. That's what the Russian government is saying right now. They've been shamed and, and destroyed without firing a single shot. Many in the West will argue that Russia could still attack. This might all be a diversion, that the Russians could be pulling back only to get Ukraine to relax before a sudden attack. This fear overlooks the role of domestic politics and messaging in the Kremlin's decision-making. This is interesting. Previously, the best argument against Russia invading was that state media was not preparing the population for war. So there was no war fervor. There was no uh, buildup to we have to do this in Russian media. Now we've gone a step further. Anti-preparation. We are no longer dealing with merely the absence, absence of domestic propaganda. Instead, Russia is actively telling its own people... That the projected invasion is all western disinformation the government will not be able to ask people to then support the very same invasion does that mean the threat is over that russia will definitely not invade ukraine no not at all russia still has forces massed that are capable of executing the operation but it would need a uh, a reason to justify the invasion that won't happen today which again the day they told us is there's definitely going to be an invasion It could happen in the coming days or weeks, but it won't be on the timeline that the West was projecting. There needs to be enough time for a provocation, likely in Donbass, to not only occur, but also to be publicized inside Russia. That is how you mobilize popular support. The message to justify a future invasion would go something like this. So this is, if there is going to be a Russian invasion of Ukraine, the following pieces would have to fall into place. This is the argument that the Russian government would make. They would say, look, we pulled back our forces from the border, and that only emboldened the West. They responded by attacking Russian citizens in eastern Ukraine, and now we have to respond to stop the genocide, because they refer to it as a genocide in the Donbass region. We've already seen clues pointing towards that approach. Today, even as he said that Russia does not want war, President Putin again labeled what is happening in the Donbass genocide. He blamed Ukraine for failing to honor the negotiated ceasefire. There was also just a 351 to 16 vote in the Duma requesting that Putin recognize the breakaway Donetsk and Lugansk republics. So far, he has resisted doing so, but it's a card he could play to bait Ukraine into launching an assault. That is a more plausible path to war. So do you understand all of that? I know it's a lot to digest. If you don't understand it, just click back in the video and watch it over again. But this is somebody who's clearly an expert and has a, a great understanding of the region and a great understanding of what would be necessary for war to happen. And he's saying, look, if there is going to be a Russian invasion of Ukraine, it's not going to be a sudden one that just happens like this. Because they sort of humiliated the West and Western media, showed how much disinformation and misinformation they spewed. And then what would happen now is if they pull back the troops, and look, they could do it could come in the form of a false flag attack or it could come in the form of a real attack where – Putin says, hey, we turned around, we were withdrawing from the border, and then that only emboldened the West, and there were attacks against you know, our people, and so now we're going to respond. But in order to do that, it would require you know, a, a media propaganda campaign to build up to war, the likes of which that we haven't seen yet to this point in Russia. Because they're saying, look, we defeated the West without firing a single shot. Look at how crazy these people are. Look at how hawkish they are. You know, look at how much they got everything dead wrong. So anyway, that's where we stand at the moment. And the uh, fi- final point is this, and I actually think this is a really important point. So let's say, let's say, for argument's sake, nothing happens. And I'm not, I'm not convinced of that. I don't know what's going to happen. I'll be the first to tell you. I have no idea what's going to happen. He, re- he invaded Georgia in the past. He invaded Crimea in the past. Um, it's possible he invades Ukraine. Like, it is. I'm not one of the people who's like, he's definitely not going to do it. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen but for argument's sake here for a second, let's say it doesn't happen. Well, why ultimately would he have decided against it? Would Putin have decided against it? Well, there was a a little discussed fact, news story that dropped the other day, which is the president of Ukraine, Zelensky, basically said more or less, and I'm paraphrasing here, look, maybe we don't end up joining NATO. Maybe that's just a pipe dream. Maybe, you know, Maybe we never become a part of NATO. And so remember, nominally, at least one of the reasons why uh, Vladimir Putin was amassing troops on the border is because it's the old Cold War argument of like, Russia did not want NATO to move any closer to their border. And over the years, NATO has. And Russia views that as an act of aggression. And so they're saying, look, don't, one of their demands is, don't you dare move NATO any closer to our border. It would be like if Russia put a, a you know, big military base in Mexico right on the U.S. border. We would view that as an act of aggression. We would view that as offensive. We'd be like, what are you doing? So that's one of the main asks of Russia. If, if the Ukrainian president came out and said, all right, we're not going to join NATO, And then Russia pulls back. That's actually good evidence that that's at least one of the most important things that Russia really wanted, that they actually wanted that and that was actually their main concern, that that wasn't just a cover story for other nefarious motives. Now, again, I don't know. I don't know what the reality is. It's probably a a complex, multifaceted situation. And there are a number of reasons why Russia is acting how they're acting and a number of reasons why the West is acting how they're acting. But look, at the end of the day, the Ukrainian president says that and then... Russia draws down, maybe we did avert the worst-case scenario. Again, I don't know. I just read you that incredibly detailed thread, the thread which says here's another way in which the war could happen, but it's not going to be a sudden invasion. It would require a series of events and a propaganda buildup to get us to that point where there is war. Okay, so there you have it, everybody. Um, At least for the moment, the worst-case scenario is averted, but the biggest takeaway from this segment is Mainstream media in the West is absolute garbage. They're complete trash. And I think that that's been made crystal clear in this segment. Next, next, next. So I have some amazing new polls that came out that I want to share with you guys because what it demonstrates is, Both Biden and Trump are losing steam, and they're losing it fast. So this is reported in the New York Post. Democratic and Republican voters are split about having President Biden or former President Donald Trump leading their tickets in 2024, but they have few candidates in mind which can replace them, according to a poll released on Sunday. The CNN survey conducted between January 10th and February 6th found that 51% of Democratic and Democratic-leaning independent voters wanted somebody other than Biden in 2024, while 45 percent hoped he'll be renominated. Asked the same question, 50 percent of Republican or Republican-leaning independent voters wanted Trump to be their standard bearer, while 49 percent are wishing for another candidate to enter the fray. Among Democrats who prefer somebody other than Biden, 31 percent said they don't want him to be reelected. 35% 35% said they don't believe he could beat the Republican candidate, and 34% cited a different reason, including 19% who said the president is too old, 4% who want a better candidate, and 3% who want somebody different. Um, Biden's going to turn 82 on November 20th, 2024. Questioned about who they would prefer instead of Biden, Senator Bernie Sanders got 5% support, followed by former First Lady Michelle Obama, 4%, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, 2%, and Vice President Kamala Harris, 2%. Okay, so here's the reality. The number for Biden is abysmally low for an incumbent president. Usually incumbent presidents, it's like he would be getting 80%, 90% of it, and he's down there at about 50%, historically weak. I mean, that is astounding, honestly. You're the incumbent which gives you an incredible amount of power and a huge lead on anybody else. And people are fleeing, man. They're fleeing. Now, the problem is, as they alluded to in that article, there is no deep bench. Like, there are no, like, bunch of options which would be better than Biden. So people are fleeing, and they just don't know where to go. It's not being harnessed in any way, shape, or form. Now, on the Trump side of the equation, look, for somebody who just lost an election – Like he just lost in 2020. His numbers are high, given that fact. But still, the idea that he's a lock, it's not true. It's not guaranteed. I understand he has the heart of the base, and he's still the most dominant figure in the Republican Party. But that number is not too impressive. There's still a number of things that could happen. But more importantly, let me show you this next poll, which is amazing. CBS News poll. Republicans, regarding January 6th, the party should... Take no position either way, 44%. Criticize those who entered the Capitol, 40%. Support those who entered the Capitol, 16%. That's what Trump's doing. Trump is doing the least popular thing. He's supporting the people from January 6th. More. Republicans, what should leaders, parties, talk about Uh, comparing January 6th to three top-picked issues? The economy, 90%. Inflation, 89%. Crime and policing, 84%. January 6th, only 15% say Republican Party leaders should talk about that issue. This is the poison pill for Donald Trump. And this is something I've warned you guys about before. But before, it was all theory. It was all my opinion. It was all my gut and my instinct. Now we have numbers to back it up in no uncertain terms. Trump cannot shut up about January 6th, Trump cannot shut up about Stop the Steal. Trump cannot shut up with this conspiracy that, like, he somehow won the election, even though we had 60 court cases that say otherwise in the Arizona audit, which said that Biden won by more than we thought he did on Election Day. He can't, he can't shut up. It's all he talks about. He's gone full Fox News grandpa, and actually it's beyond that. Fox News is better than him on this issue. He's like Newsmax grandpa or One American News Network grandpa. So he's talking about this same issue over and over and over and over and over and over and over, and it is not resonating, and it's not going to resonate. People are over it. People are past it. Even Republican voters are like, I don't want to hear it. Talk to me about the economy. Talk to me about inflation. Talk to me about crime and policing. These are their main issues. And Trump can't keep his eye on the ball. Now, look, I submit to you, I've told you guys this a thousand times, the 2016 iteration of Trump, how he campaigned. He was, he mixed in the standard like, you know, Republican bigotry, anti-immigration sentiment, anti-Muslim sentiment, but mixed that with a hefty amount of fake economic populism where he talked, I'm not going to cut Medicare. I'm not going to cut Social Security. I'm not going to let your jobs be outsourced. He even talked about raising certain taxes on the wealthy. He even talked about bringing back Glass-Steagall at some point. It was, it was a certain amount of economic populism, which admittedly was fake given how he governed, but it was that mixed with... The other standard Republican things like the anti-immigration sentiment, anti-Muslim sentiment, and things of that nature. 2020 version of Trump, he lost the faux populism. Like, it was just gone. He was very, it was, he was very petty. Everything was personal to him. Um, everything was centered around his narcissism and his ego. And he lost. He lost to a guy who's half dead, Joe Biden, who, needed, who stayed in his basement the entire campaign and won because at least he wasn't Donald Trump. Well, now he's trying to make a comeback. He still has amazing numbers with his base. But there is zero appeal beyond his base. And even the Republican base says shut up about Stop the Steal and January 6th. Shut up. I don't want to hear it. I don't care. Economy, inflation, real issues that affect our lives. This is the poison pill for Donald Trump. Because I don't think he has it in him to stop talking about it. I think it's going to be the majority of what he talks about even up until 2024. And he even said, there was an article that came out that said he wants to dump Pence when he runs again in 2024, if ultimately he's able to run again in 2024. And his, his litmus test is, um, are you, do you have an undying loyalty to me where you back me no matter what, and do you agree that the election was rigged in 2020? That's his litmus test. The guy's too much up his own ass, so he's going to self-destruct. We're watching it happen right now. His own base is like, stop talking about this. So Biden and Trump are in in trouble, man. They're both in trouble. They are still the most dominant figures in their respective parties, but they're on the decline, and it is a steep decline. So look out, man. Look, I don't want to mislead anybody here, because the fact of the matter is, given everything, still the most likely scenario is like a rematch of Biden versus Trump in 2024. That is still the most likely scenario. But it's a long time until 2024, And given the trajectories they're on, it's becoming less and less likely each day. And that is definitely noteworthy. Okay. Let's move on. You guys are going to like this one. Prince Andrew is somebody who I would call a royal family goon. I'd be very comfortable calling him that. Entitled, pampered little prick, who was probably given everything uh, he needed in his life and then some. And um, it's, that's very obvious when you listen to him talk, when you look at his actions. So now, he got a little bit of uh, comeuppance here. Let me go ahead and show you this headline. This is in the Daily Mail, but this has been reported very widely. Prince Andrew settles sex case with Virginia Roberts for... That's I think that's pounds, after exasperated Charles orders him to agree payout before Queen's Platinum Jubilee. Andrew and his accuser, Virginia Jeffrey, reached out-of-court settlement in civil sex claim filed in New York. Her lawyer wrote jointly with Andrew's lawyer to say that the parties had reached settlement in principle. Court papers show Duke will make substantial donation to Ms. Jeffrey's uh, charity in support of victims' rights. Buckingham Palace declined to comment on news, which is in year of Queen's Platinum Jubilee celebration. Okay, so what happened here was his family, like the Queen, for example, forced him, like, shut this whole thing down, pay out whatever you got to pay out, we'll pay for it. And so, you know, the family comes in to save the day. That's basically what happens. His family saved save the day, which happens with almost all entitled pamper, pampered little pricks. Um, now, he still maintains, me, bro? I didn't even do anything wrong. I do not know what you're talking about. So I'm about to show you how he is literally the worst liar I've ever seen, and that's not even a slight exaggeration. There's not a, a, an ounce of hyperbole in that comment you're about to see for yourself. Um, but by the way, I've actually seen, at first the articles were saying, It's an undisclosed sum of money then you see there uh 7.5 million pounds which i'm not that good at telling you what that is in in dollars but i think it's 7.5 million pounds is about nine or ten million dollars but then i also saw other headlines that said um 12 million pounds so i don't know if it's 7.5 million pounds or 12 million pounds either way virginia is getting paid and look that's some semblance of justice, given what happened to her, <laughs> based on the evidence. And so I'm happy for her. I'm happy for her that she's getting that money. Um, now, I told you guys I was going to show you how this is literally the worst liar on the planet. Two years ago, um, Prince Andrew sat down with BBC. And he got stripped of his titles, by the way. So I guess he's no longer a prince. Uh, he sat down with BBC Newsnight. And, you know, he thought... Look, I've got to get ahead of the scandal. I've got to tell my story. So I'll be, I have nothing to hide. I'll be up front. I'll tell everybody what went down and, you know, how close I was with Jeffrey Epstein, the CEO of Elite Sex Crimes Incorporated, you know, the guy who, like, pedophilia is his business model. That's, that's what Jeffrey Epstein did. So he tries to get in front of the story, and it, everything crashes and burns in such a glorious way. It's a really long interview, but I'm just going to show you some of the pieces here so you can see how bad of a liar Prince Andrew actually is. Watch.
3: In 2008, he was convicted of soliciting and procuring a minor for prostitution. He was jailed. This is your friend. How did you say about it? Well, I ceased contact with him
4: after uh, I was aware that he was um, under investigation. And that was later on in, in... 2006. And I wasn't in touch with him again until 2010. So um, I just, uh, just...
3: He was released in July, within months, by December of 2010. You went to stay with him at his New York mansion. Why? Why were you staying with a convicted sex offender? Right.
4: Now I went there with the sole purpose of saying to him that because he had been convicted, it was inappropriate for us to be seen together. I felt that... Doing it over the telephone was the chicken's way of doing it.
3: That was December of 2010. He threw a party to celebrate his release, and you were invited as a guest of honour. Oh,
4: in 2010? There certainly wasn't a a, a party to celebrate his release in December, because it was a small dinner party. There were only eight or ten of us, I think, at the the dinner. If there was a a party, then I'd know nothing about that.
3: You were invited to that dinner as a guest of honour.
4: Well, I was there, so there was a dinner. was quite as you might put it, but yeah, okay. I was there for a, I was there and I guess.
3: I'm just trying to work this out because you said you went to break up the relationship, and yet you stayed at that New York mansion several days. I'm wondering
4: how. Well, long I was doing a number of other things while I was there.
3: But you were staying at the house of yeah. a convicted sex offender.
4: It was a convenient place to stay.
3: But That definitely wasn't you getting a foot massage from a Russian girl in Jeffrey Epstein's house. Um, no. She described dancing with you, no. and you profusely sweating, <laughs> and that she went on to have baths. Well, there's possibly a, there's a slight problem with, 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 with the sweating
4: um, because uh, I have a peculiar male position, which is that I don't sweat. Um, well, I didn't sweat at the time, and that was oh, she? Yes, I didn't sweat at the time because I um, had suffered what I would describe as an overdose of adrenaline in the Falklands War when I was shot at. Uh, and I simply, it, it, was, it, was, it was almost impossible for me to, to, to sweat. And it's only because I have done a number of things in the recent past that I'm starting to be able to do that again. So I'm afraid to say that, 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 that there's a medical condition that says that I didn't do it, so therefore...
3: Do you know you didn't meet her, or do you just not remember? No,
4: her? I have. I, I, I don't know if I've met her.
3: She provided a photo of yes. the two of you together. Yes. Your arm was around her waist. Yes. You've seen the photo. I've seen the photograph. How do you explain that? I can't,
4: because I don't, I have no, I, again, I have absolutely no memory of that photograph ever being taken.
3: Do you recognise yourself in oh, the face? Yes, yeah, it's
4: pretty difficult not to recognise yourself.
3: But it's possible that it was you with your oh, arm now. That's me,
4: but, but whether that's my hand or whether that's um, the position I, I, but I don't, I have simply no recollection of the photograph ever being taken. I don't remember uh, that photograph ever being taken. I don't remember going upstairs uh, in the house, because that photograph is taken upstairs.
3: She said she had sex with you three times, once in a London house when she was trafficked to you in Maxwell's house, once in New York a month or so later at Epstein's mansion, and once on his private island in a group of seven or eight other girls.
4: No. No to all all of it. Absolutely no to all of it.
3: Are you saying you don't believe her, she's lying?
4: That's a very difficult thing to um, answer when the allegations came out originally. I went, well, oh, that's a bit strange. I don't remember this. You
3: could not spend time around him and not know. <sighs> would you be willing to testify or give a statement under oath if you were asked?
4: If Bush came to show and the legal, <laughs> legal advice was to do so, then I would be duty-bound to do so.
1: I mean, that, it's amazing. They should show that video in schools. <laughs> to to show like every single sign of a brazen liar is there. Choking on his own words like you just saw there at the end. Saying things that try to like that are obviously false confidently that get debunked in like the next second. Like I don't I don't know if I met her. Like this is a picture of you with her. Is that you? Yeah. <laughs> Why would you say, I don't know if I met her, and then the picture's right, it's like, you would have to be like, yeah, I met her. There's a picture of us together, obviously, I met her. Like, but, oh, my God, the thing about the sweating, I had a medical condition where I didn't sweat. There are pictures from the same time period where he's sweating, where, like, you see him walking, and underneath, in the armpit area, you can see a sweat stain. I have a medical condition, so the medical condition, it says that that, could, that didn't happen. I, I love the, um, I don't know if you saw this in this video. It's in a longer video. It may have been in this video, too. But it uh, talks about how, yeah, Jeffrey Epstein was like, found guilty of, I don't know, sex trafficking or some underage sex crime in 2006. And he's like, I cut off ties with him. But then I, we started hanging out again in 2010. What? You can't say you cut off ties if four years later you're right back with him when you knew he was guilty of the sex crimes. Like every part of that is just hilariously transparent. I want to thank him for doing that interview and showing the world that he's guilty. Look, I'm going to morph into a conservative commentator here for a second. Guilty. Don't don't do the trial. Don't no due process. Send his ass straight to jail. Look, I'm I'm joking. Of course, I believe in due process, but like. On that alone, like any reasonable person is going to watch that and be like, yeah, you did it. You obviously did it. That's And credit to that BBC uh, Newsnight interviewer. She did a fantastic job. Just like really deadpan, really factual, just give him enough rope to hang himself. Unbelievable. So now he's paying, they're paying out millions, and um, I forgot to mention one of the... Terms of the deal is supposedly that she's not allowed to say anything about it publicly until after the Queen's Platinum Jubilee, which I don't even know what that is. I don't know what that is. Obviously, it's some sort of party thing. I don't know. I don't know. But there you have it. Elite sex pest's gonna elite sex pest, and this time at least he was caught. At least there's some semblance of justice, even though you know clearly it's not an ideal scenario. And uh, my heart goes out to Virginia. What you go through as an Epstein victim and being trafficked to this guy, Jesus Christ, it doesn't get any darker than that. Okay, next. Anthony Weiner um, disappeared for a while, and that was a good thing because he was a mess. So this is a guy... It was brought down by, you know, I think it was a sexting scandal. He was a congressman, and, you know, news came out. He was, he had this alter ego, Carlos Danger, he called himself. Hilarious. And he was sexting with this Sidney Leathers character, and um, he got caught. Big scandal. I think it was actually conservative media that broke it, but it made it into the mainstream because there was obviously merit to it. So he was, you know, disgraced ex-congressman. Then he claimed, oh, I reformed myself. I think he tried to run for mayor of New York City. And in the process of that, now, by the way, his wife at the time, whom Abedin, stuck with him through thick and thin. Uh, when he ran for mayor of New York City, more stuff came out. Exact same type of scandal he was sexting. Now, originally, I don't think originally the people he was sexting were underage. But then it came out that, indeed, he was sexting a 15-year-old. And I remember, I mean, the guy clearly has problems. But I remember when I was like, oh, my goodness, this is bad, is when homeboy took a dick pic with his kid next to him in the bed. And in the picture, you can see the outline of his junk with his kid sitting next to him in the bed. And, I mean, I'm no fan of Huma Abedin, who's the biggest Hillary Clinton apologist on the planet, but God damn did I feel for her, where she, she must have seen that and just every ounce of life left her body frozen, just terrified. And, uh, I mean, this guy's got issues, man. This guy's got issues. So fast forward to today, he's trying to make now his third comeback. And um, he, I think he went to prison for one of his sexting scandals because he can't sext underage girls. I mean, the fact that anybody has to say this is astounding. So um, he tries to make a comeback. This is his third comeback. He's going to do a radio show with this guy named Curtis Sliwa. Curtis Sliwa is a right-wing guy. He ran for governor in, or not governor, was a governor or mayor, one or the other in, in New York or New York City? And um, Curtis Lee has been a guy who's on the radio, WABC in New York, which is, you know, the main talk station in New York. And so they're doing this show, like, left versus right show, where it's going to be Anthony Weiner and Curtis Leela. So they're doing their first round of interviews for this show. They agreed to do Hannity's show. Okay, now you guys know I think Hannity is hes just a right-wing hack. It's obvious. We're going to get a rare instance here where Hannity – because of his right-wing hackery, actually that's a good question to this guy who's a Democrat. Anthony Weiner handles this in the worst way imaginable. I mean, he self-destructs, he implodes, he face plants, and it just shows he's not, he ain't cut out for this, man. He's not cut out for this. So let's watch, and then I'll respond.
5: I guess the first question that I have is, you pled guilty, Anthony to sending obscene materials to a young girl, a 15-year-old girl. You went, you pled guilty, you served jail time. Have you changed? Are you a different person?
2: Well, um, I think so. I don't think anyone can go through that kind of experience, and I think this is probably true of people who have been to other types of adversity. I don't think you go through that type of experience and don't emerge Wait a minute, so that's,
5: like a ob- Anthony, that's an obscure answer, I think so. Either you know in your heart if you changed, or you know in your heart if you didn't change. Or do you, can you assure people, because you're going to now try and draw in an audience, and they're going to want to know if you changed or not. Have you changed? They, they,
2: they, they can judge for themselves. I'm sorry? I said they can judge for themselves. I'm not out to persuade you or anyone else that I've changed. I mean, I, I'm doing a radio show, and people can call in and ask me questions. We did one this past Saturday where people had an opportunity to call in and were Curtis to ask me a bunch of questions, and I asked and answer the best I can. But in terms of, like, I'm trying to draw someone in, no, I'm not trying to make someone like me or someone be persuaded of any particular outlook on me. We're going to have some conversations about things going on in New York City and other places, and hopefully people will tune into the show, but I'm not terribly interested in trying to make them feel any differently about me.
1: Anthony, Anthony, what are you doing, bro? What are you doing? What are you doing? You know how you answer that question. I don't need to tell you guys this. You understand this. Have you changed? Yes. Yes. I did the crime. I served my time. Uh, I was wrong. Under no circumstance should anybody be sexting an underage girl. I'm disgusted with my past behavior. Now I'm back. And there's a reason why my punishment time was, I don't know what it was, a year, two years, something like that. I took it on the chin like I should have, and now I'm back. And uh, I'll prove myself in the public eye moving forward from now. That's all you have to say. Now, he couldn't say that.
6: Why couldn't he say that? Why couldn't he say that?
1: I think you guys know the answer. I think you know the answer, and I think I know the answer. Weiner's saying this because he can't bring himself to brazenly lie now. So he's clearly – some shit is still going on. Some shit is still going on. Now, I don't know. (laughs) Whoever he's dealing with, whoever he's talking to, are they underage? Are they of age? I don't know. But clearly there's something in the back of his mind that's like, don't say you've totally changed, because then when it comes out that you didn't totally change, uh, you're going to go right through the ringer again. So – if if you dodge the question a little bit, at least in the future when you're caught, you could say I never really said I changed. Man, mm. Mm. Anthony. <laughs> Anthony, Anthony, Anthony. By the way, there's a phenomenal documentary on Anthony Weiner. Um, I was it on, I think it was on Hulu. But yeah, watch that and oh boy, is that a roller coaster ride! I highly recommend everybody watches that so you can get all the ins and outs of the story. You get the behind the scenes stuff. I mean, the guy's just a mess, man. He clearly has a problem. He clearly has a problem. So, like, on the one hand, you actually do feel bad for him. Um, but on the other hand, it's like, dog, if you got a problem and you can't shake the problem, maybe don't be in the public eye like this so much, you know? Maybe move to Costa Rica and, you know, open up a sandwich shop or something. I don't know. It's like he's torturing himself, and it's like he likes the torture Maybe he does. Maybe he's, he's got a thing for, like, public humiliation. But, I mean, this is one of the guys who's been more publicly humiliated than anybody. Like, he's in the top 1% of public humiliation. Look, it's, it's, it's a very – it's a touchy topic, right? Because, obviously, somebody like Anthony Weiner, who has the urges that he has, he didn't ask for that. He didn't want it. But by the same token, and this, some people might think this is controversial, but it's really not if you're willing to use a logic. <laughs> the fact of the matter is, virtually all people who are pedophiles, who have these terrible urges and attraction to underage people, they didn't ask for that. And I'm sure if they could press a button and get rid of it and be attracted to people of the proper age, they would do it. But then you're faced with that conundrum. It's like, what does society do with people like that? Well, the fact of the matter is, you only go to prison if you act on those urges. And so, you know, here's a guy who acted on it at least to some degree. We don't know if he ever actually did a sex act with an underage person, but the sexting alone is bad enough and nefarious enough and wrong enough. And so, he had to go away for that, but you know, on the one hand you have sympathy, on the other hand you also want to say like, get it together, dog. Get it together. At least try to get out of the public eye if you're still struggling with these demons. And it looks to me like he's still struggling with these demons. Sometimes you can look at somebody and just, you have this intuitive feeling of like, are they a happy person? And with Anthony Weiner, it is screaming off every fiber of his being. Like, no, I'm not happy. I'm like, I'm like a miserable person and I'm struggling. Anyway, we'll see if that show gives us any material, because it might. Curtis Lee was an opinionated guy. Anthony Weiner's an opinionated guy. And before all the 14 scandals, Anthony Weiner was actually a pretty aggressive uh, Democrat who was nominally representing the left flank back in the day. So uh, this is not the person the left flank wants being their spokesperson. I can tell you that for damn sure. Okay. Let's do one more, and then we'll take a break. So the other day we talked about the um, the situation in Canada with the trucker blockade. Now, all of the facts in this story matter because it's a roller coaster ride in terms of things I support and don't support. So, you know, one of the things I brought up is that 90% of the truckers are vaccinated. And so the overwhelming majority are looking at these protesters, these truckers doing the blockade, and they're going, just get vaccinated. Like. Just do it. It's good for the community. It's good for the collective. It's good for yourself. Over 90% protection from severe illness, hospitalization, and death. Just get vaccinated. The other thing is, the the Teamsters Union, which represents the truckers in Canada, is against the protest and the blockade. So, you know, the point I'm making here is that this isn't simply a working class uprising, because their main thing is end the mandates. And it's like, okay, fine opinion to have. We can debate that. We can discuss that. But Me personally, I like protests and I like blockades for things like universal health care and higher wages and, you know, more unionization and ending wars and things of that nature. That's what I get behind. Now, to be fair, in Canada, they already have universal health care, so they're not going to protest for universal health care. But if anything, I'm just jealous as a leftist watching what they're doing because they have military people, former military and former police who are like running the thing. And so they're very disciplined in how they're acting. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, I've never seen the left be disorganized, certainly in my entire life. Certainly my time on this planet being alive, the left has never been disorganized. Closest we got was Occupy Wall Street, and that was relatively disorganized. There was a lot of bodies there, but it was still relatively disorganized. Anyway, okay. So that is, uh, you know, the general breakdown of what's going on. The Canadian government is now responding in a way that I think is absolutely insane, and it sets a devastating precedent moving forward. So uh, the Canadian government held this press conference the other day, and they laid out some of the things that they're gonna do. Watch this.
7: First, we are broadening the scope of Canada's anti-money laundering and terrorist financing rules so that they cover crowdfunding platforms and the payment service providers they use. These changes cover all forms of transactions, including digital assets, such as cryptocurrencies. The illegal blockades have highlighted the fact that crowdfunding platforms and some of the payment service providers they use are not fully captured under the Proceeds of Crime and Terrorist Financing Act.
1: So they're calling them terrorists? No, 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 no. That's not accurate. They're not doing violence for a political reason. That's not what's happening. The overwhelming majority of these people are peaceful, regardless if you agree or disagree with their politics. That's irrelevant to the question here. The question is, are they actually terrorists? The answer is no. So I saw thought it was like this can't be true. It's coming straight out of the mouth of a Canadian government official. I was like, this can't be true. So I dug a little deeper to figure out whether it was true. And the reality is even worse than I thought. So take a look at this. This is from BBC News. Trudeau vows to freeze anti-mandate protesters' bank accounts. Their bank accounts. So we covered one of the angles to this story previously is that they raised about $10 million through GoFundMe. And then GoFundMe seized that money. And they were like, no, you're not going to get it. What? So I said at the time when I saw that, no, no, no. Again, I don't care what you think of the nature of this specific protest. The precedent it sets to have crowdfunding sites say, we're going to decide based on our own politics or based on some pressure from a government that we're not going to allow you to have access to the funds that are yours, that we're donated to you. I hate that. I hate that. These platforms, whether it's, you know, big tech, social media companies, or or something like a funding site, crowdfunding site, they're supposed to be just mediums. They're supposed to be just like, look, anybody could use it for any reason. Now, are there still rules? Sure. You can't crowdfund a murder. Murder is illegal. Protesting is not illegal. Regardless of what you think of the specifics and the nature of this protest, for GoFundMe to seize their money is a gigantic overstep. I don't know if it was because of pressure from the Canadian government. I don't know if it was because of the personal politics within the company, GoFundMe itself. But they froze it, and that's inexcusable. But now they're going further, calling them terrorists, and they vow to freeze their personal bank accounts. By the way, zero oversight. This doesn't go in front of a judge. There is no due process. They're just going to freeze the accounts. That's what they want to do. No. Hard no. And, again, you have to understand the main point here. I don't care what you think about the nature of this specific protest. If you set this precedent – It is going to be used on Black Lives Matter protesters. It's going to be used on leftists. It's going to be used on unions protesting for higher wages and more vacation time. It's going to be used like that. So you draw a hard line right now and you say, hell no, we can't allow it. We just can't allow it. And by the way, so there are politicians in the U.S., mostly Republicans, who are speaking out against this. Good, I'm glad they're speaking out against this. But, but. There's a little bit of a problem here. The Patriot Act already gave the U.S. government the authority to do this same damn thing. So they're like, oh, this, can't, this is fascism coming to Canada. Okay, but then a lot of these same politicians voted for the fascism that came to America. If you're going to call that fascism, then we also have it under the Patriot Act. Not only do they spy on everybody illegally with a rubber stamp fake visa court, but also, one of the things they can do is freeze bank accounts, no due process, no oversight. So they, they don't hold themselves to the same standards as, as you know we look at in Canada here. So they're using, they're using what's happening with this blockade and this protest in Canada. And they're using it like a 9-11 moment where they're like, let's just entrench more power and authority to the government. And look, you've got to call a spade a spade. you got to call it what it is. This is rank authoritarianism. This is like textbook new-age authoritarianism. That's what it is. And so my feelings on on the specifics of this protest, like I told you, are mixed. Because Teamsters Truckers Union is against the protest. Ninety percent of the truckers are vaccinated, and the overwhelming majority of the protesters are against what they're doing. Uh, But at the same time, GoFundMe should not freeze their money. The government should not freeze their bank accounts. And you cannot call them terrorists. The precedent this sets is horrendous. And then look, the final point I'll make, and maybe people watching this, I, most of you are probably with everything I've said up to this point. Um, but there's one point here where I might lose you, but it's okay, because it's how I feel about the matter. I, I see no problem with, instead of doing the hard vaccine mandate, just do vaccine or test. So people are so dead set on not getting the vaccine. Okay, look, you're wrong. Uh, You know, the overwhelming statistical evidence says you're going to be fine, and if anything, the vaccine is going to help you. But you know what? 90% are already vaccinated. Nine out of ten, that's a lot of people vaccinated. So why not say, okay, if you don't want to get the vaccine, fine, just take a rapid test. That's it. That's not some uh, ridiculous infringement on your liberty. No. Rapid test takes, you know, takes two seconds to swab the thing in your nose, and then you get the answer in 10 minutes, depending on which test you're using, 10, 15 minutes, whatever it is. That's just a basic standard regulation. It's like telling construction workers you have to wear a hard hat. Nobody views that as like the death of freedom in the West. So just give – is that not a compromise? That makes sense? Okay, you don't have to give the vaccine if you don't want the vaccine, but you're going to take a quick test. That's it. That's all you got to do. That's all you got to do. And, look, part of me is inclined to say – If you have 90% already vaccinated, I don't see why this is a big deal anyway. Why not just say, fine, okay, we concede, no more hard vaccine mandates. There you go. But, again, I think what they're terrified of is this. If the protest works, if the blockade works, well, then they know workers have them by the balls. But you know what? That's exactly what I want. Even if I have disagreements with the nature of this specific protest, I love the idea of the precedent being laid. If you guys just blockade a couple bridges and demand stuff, you're going to get your demands, or at least you're going to get some of your demands. I think that's an awesome thing. I think it's nice for workers to be reminded, no, you do have the power, because there's so many more of you, and you're so much more necessary than the owner class. They just extract your surplus value, that's all they do. So you're way more necessary than they are, so remind them of it and make demands that are fair and just and intelligent. So if this is the thing that lays the precedent, great, wonderful. Again, I have disagreements with the nature of this specific protest, but that doesn't matter. I want that precedent to be set. The precedent I don't want to be set is, you're a terrorist if you protest, and uh, we're going to freeze your bank account, and we're you're going to we're going to freeze the crowdfunding that's supposed to go to you. So, I do think this is authoritarian. I think if you're not opposing this, you are you've lost the plot, man. You've lost the plot. You could hate what these truckers a specific thing they want. You could hate it. But you still as a matter of principle, should say no on the freezing the bank accounts, no on the freezing the the crowdfunding money, no on calling them terrorists because that is slimy. It's disingenuous, and it is deeply authoritarian. And we have to call space base. All right, guys, let's take a break. When we come back, I still got a lot more for you, including Novak Djokovic finally speaks out about the whole vaccine scandal in the Australian Open. This is a really interesting story. You don't want to miss it. Stay right there. <phone rings> Our back, beaches Welcome back to the show. All right, let's continue. Novak Djokovic is one of the greatest tennis players of all time. It's generally understood right now, based on how many majors they have, or grand slams, as they're called in tennis, um, that it's either Novak Djokovic uh, – Roger Federer or Rafael Nadal. Those are the three that are in the GOAT conversation. Now, Nadal just won a 21st major. Federer and Djokovic have 20, respectively. Each one of them has 20. They were, tied, they were all tied at 20 for a while. Nadal just won the Australian Open, which you know arguably makes him the GOAT. He now has probably the best claim to GOAT status it gets a little bit complicated because then you got to look at how many regular tournaments did they win versus how many majors and so you can make an argument even if you have fewer majors but you have more regular tournament wins that maybe you're the goat if you value the regular tournaments you know uh, a little more you know if somebody has 10 or 20 more regular tournament wins but one less major who is the goat it's it's a little bit subjective but there is also some objectivity in the conversation so uh djokovic recently went through the giant scandal uh with the australian open where he nominally was cleared to come to the country to play in the australian open he shows up there they detain him he gets rejected from getting in going into the country why because he never got vaccinated he had an exemption but then when they looked into the specifics of the exemption and by the way different factions of the australian government went back and forth on this so i think it was the prime minister who said we're kicking you out And then it was a a judge or judges that said, actually, no, he's allowed to stay. And then it was like the immigration minister or something that said at the the last second, no, we're going to kick you out. So he didn't get vaccinated. He did just have COVID recently, though, when he beat COVID. And so he has natural immunity, but they don't count natural immunity the same as vaccine immunity. Now, in my opinion, I don't like that. I think you can count natural immunity the same as vaccine immunity. Some studies say it's even better. If you're lucky enough to survive COVID, then... Having the natural immunity works just as good, if not better, than the vaccine immunity. But I think the main reason they ended up kicking him out was that he lied on his forum about traveling to other countries before going to the Australian Open. So he said, I haven't traveled to countries in the past 14 days or whatever it was. And he did. There was video of him on social media being in a number of different places. He even did events while he had COVID. like He did an interview and did some other things while he had COVID, which is wildly reckless. So they made the claim, look, you're a threat to public safety. We're going to kick you out. I don't buy the claim he's a threat to public safety. He already had COVID. He beat COVID. He has a natural immunity. But if you want to be a stickler for the, the technical rules, then you could say, yeah, well, you broke a, a rule by lying to us about where you had been, and so we're going to kick you out. Anyway, that's a long way of saying there was a huge debate about whether or not he should be allowed in the country. Well, and to play the Australian Open. So now he's come out and he's speaking for the first time about this topic. So everybody's curious what he has to say. He sat down for an interview. Uh, let's see what he had to say, and then I'm going to react.
5: Have you received any vaccination against COVID? I have not. Why? I understand that uh, and support fully uh, the freedom to choose, you know, whether you want to get vaccinated or not. And uh, I have not uh, spoken about this before, and I have not disclosed my medical record and uh, my vaccination status because uh, I, I had the right to keep that private and discreet, but as I see, there's a lot of uh, wrong conclusions and assumptions out there. I think it's important to speak up about that um, and, and, and justify certain things, right? So I, um, I was never against uh, uh, vaccination, I understand that globally, Everyone is trying to put a big effort into handling this virus and, and seeing, a, hopefully, a, 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 an end soon to this virus. And vaccination is probably the biggest effort that was made. Probably half of the planet was, was vaccinated. And I fully respect that. But I've always uh, represented and, and always supported uh, the freedom to choose what you put into your body. And for me, that is essential. It's really the principle of... of Understanding what is right and what is wrong for you and me as an elite professional athlete, I've always carefully reviewed, assessed everything that comes in from the supplements, food, the water that I drink, or uh, sports drinks, anything really that comes into my body as a fuel. Based on all the information that I got, uh, I, I decided not to take the vaccine uh, as of today. So, do you have as of today? Yes, I keep my mind open because we are all, we are all trying to find collectively uh, a best possible solution to end COVID, right? I mean, no one really wants to be in this kind of situation that we've been in collectively for, for two years. I'm part of the a sport, a very global sport that is played every single week in a different location. So, you know, I understand the consequences of my decision. And one of the consequences of my decision was not going to Australia, and I was prepared not to go. And I understand that not being vaccinated today, I, you know, I'm uh, unable to travel to most of the tournaments at the moment. And, and that's the price you're willing to pay. I, that's, that is the price Definitely that I'm willing to pay.
4: Ultimately, are you prepared to forego the chance to be the greatest player that ever picked up a racket, statistically? Because you feel so strongly about this, Jack?
5: Yes. I do. But as things stand, if this means that you miss the French Open, is that a price you'd be willing to pay? Yes. That is the price that I'm willing to pay. And if it means that you miss Wimbledon this year, again, that's a price you're willing to pay? Yes. yes. Why, that? Why? 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 Because the principles of... Uh, decision-making on my body uh, are more important than any title or anything else. I, I'm, I'm trying to be in tune with my body um, as much as I possibly can. What do you say directly to anti-vaccination campaigners around the world who proudly declare Novak Djokovic is one of us? I say that everyone has the right to, to choose to act or say whatever they feel is appropriate for them. And I have never said that I'm part of that movement.
1: Wow. So this is really interesting, and I have a lot of thoughts about it. Um, At the end there, he sort of tries to distance himself a little bit from the anti-vaccine movement, even though he's saying, like, I'm not going to get a vaccine. I don't want to get a vaccine. That's interesting to me. I don't know... Because clearly he has the courage of his convictions, which is why he's like, look, I'll sacrifice being the goat, I'll sacrifice going to most of the tournaments to not get the vaccine. So clearly he has an ideological position here where he's like, I am against the vaccine, but he's also saying to the anti-vaccine movement, like, I never said I was with you guys. I don't know if that's to try to save face publicly, or I don't know if he thinks there's maybe they get. There are too many cranks in the anti-vaccine movement where they say, like, you know, there's a microchip in the thing and he knows that's not true. He doesn't want to be associated with them. He also stresses the bodily autonomy angle. There are plenty of anti-vaccine people who go beyond that and say, not only do I not want to get the vaccine, I would literally, like, there was a story from a while ago now, six, seven months ago, where, like, uh, anti-vaccine protesters tore down, like, a vaccine site like they ripped down the tent and did a bunch of stuff. I, I don't know if he sees that and he says, that goes too far. I just support the bodily autonomy. But it's interesting that he's ideologically clearly opposed to the vaccine, but he's like, I'm not with the anti-vaxxers. Okay, so, so take that for what it's worth. But, man, three out of the four majors are saying you cannot play in them unless you're, you're vaccinated. Three out of the four. Wimbledon, the Australian Open, and the French Open. Um, I think the U.S. is the only one at the moment that you're allowed to play if you're not vaccinated. He's saying I'll forego three of the four majors and I'll forego most of the regular tournaments to not get vaccinated. Woo! So on on the one hand, I just sort of want to put my arm around him and try to convince him that, bro, you're going to be okay if you get the vaccine. Like, is there a tiny percentage of people who have – like very negative side effects from the vaccine? Yes, there are. That's the same thing with any medical intervention. But the overwhelming majority, over 99% of the people who get the vaccine are fine. It helps them. Again, it gives you over a 90% protection from severe illness, hospitalization, and death. So if you get COVID and you're vaccinated, you are much less likely to have a severe case of it. Now the vaccine might give you some minor side effects. Like when I had my first shot, I had a little bit of a headache but I got over it very quickly. When I had my second shot, I, uh, I was fine. I had no side effects at all. It was interesting. So originally I got the Johnson & Johnson, which was the one and done shot. Evidence came out that that was like the least effective of the vaccine. So I decided to get a booster. I got a, I got a Moderna. Um, so I did like the mix and match thing. I had no side effects at all from the Moderna. And look, I'm fine. In fact, I told the story before, Sager and Jetty had COVID. Crystal had just did a show with Sager. Um, and they were like, three feet away the entire show talking right at each other. And this was back when it was Delta, which was the worst strain that we know of so far of COVID. Crystal should have gotten it. And then she should have passed it on to me. And Crystal didn't get it. And I didn't get it. I think that's a good example of like the vaccine probably works. Now look, that's an anecdote, but you don't need anecdotes. You go to the micro, or excuse me, the macro situation. French study of over 20 million people. Vaccines uh, protect against severe illness, hospitalization and death over 90%. So I just like, I want to I wanna help him out. Like, I want to talk to him and, and try I'll, – bro, I'll show you the graphs. I'll show you the charts. I'll show you, like, here's how well the vaccine is working. Even if you grant all of the anti-vaccine arguments based on the data, like, oh, look at the VAERS program and stuff, even if you grant that, the side effects of getting COVID, the downsides of getting COVID are way worse. So even if you grant people everything in that VAERS program, which you shouldn't, but even if you do – you should still get the vaccine. Like, I don't, I want to try to convince these people. I want to try to convince them, especially because in his instance, it changes history. Like, it literally changes history if he doesn't play in three of the four majors, if he can't play in most of the tennis tournaments, because he is sacrificing his real chance of becoming a GOAT. Rafa now already has 21 majors. The French Open is coming up. The French Open rafa owns the french open he it's, it's played on clay and rafael nadal is the best on clay and so he's like the favorite every time he plays the french open like he's going to be two majors ahead of you and you're going to be behind the eight ball for what for what so on the one hand i want to convince them but then on the other hand look and maybe you guys won't agree with this part of it i, I don't know but it, there's a even though he's wrong about the vaccine and he should get it and it would help him against severe illness hospitalization and death and they're very unlikely to be big downsides to it. Um, there is something that's sort of respectable about about this, in the sense that he has the courage of his conviction so much that he's like, uh, maybe I won't be the GOAT, even though I'm right there. I'm in the conversation. I'm right there. But I'm willing to forego it. Uh, the final point I'll make is when he says, look, I support personal freedom and bodily autonomy. Okay, look, I get it. You guys know my my perspective on the vaccine mandate. Um, I think I think we need to try our best to balance individual rights, personal freedom, with the well-being of the community and the collective. I think anybody, especially if you're uh, politically on the left, I think you need to find a way to balance both of those things that we value deeply. Because I care deeply about the community and the collective and the well-being of everybody, but I also care about individual freedom and bodily autonomy and all that stuff. So my, I'm against the hard vaccine mandate that's too authoritarian, but I like effectively what's called the soft mandate, which is like vaccinate or test. So that's my personal choice on it. He clearly is on the side of not even that. I don't even want to do that, which is just more of a basic regulation and not an authoritarian overreach. He says he supports personal freedom and bodily autonomy. I just want to ask him, so do you support the legalization of all drugs? Because if you support personal freedom and bodily autonomy um, – then you should support legalization of all drugs. Uh, you know, me personally, you guys know, I want to legalize, tax, and regulate drugs. There are certain ones that, with certain additives that I would regulate out of existence because they're too, they're too dangerous and they're deadly, like fentanyl, for example. But if he's being consistent, he'd say, no, even legal fentanyl should be good. Okay, if you believe in personal freedom and bodily autonomy, you go whatever you want in your body. Drink Clorox if you want. Uh, what about abortion? What are Novak's thoughts on abortion? You know, it, if you really believe in personal freedom and bodily autonomy, all right, well, let's follow that through with logical conclusion. Or is it just in the realm of this, this vaccine? So I don't know. But also notice there wasn't much chatter about vaccines previously. Like in the U.S., to go to a public school, you have to have all these different vaccines. They really said anything about it or cared. They just thought it was par for the course. It was just a medical thing. Now all of a sudden with one vaccine, people are like, you know, flipping out. So there's it's a bunch of weird, different nuances to this conversation. But look, man, all I'll say is I don't – I would like to see him play in all the majors and play in the tournaments because I want to see history unfold where it's a fair fight between, you know, uh, Nadal, Federer, and uh, Djokovic. And by the way, Federer had a terrible injury, and he hasn't, been, he hasn't played in a while. I don't know when he's coming back. So it's really just Djokovic and Nadal at the moment – vying for that goat status, and and Djokovic is sort of bowing out here. So, uh, actually, I lied when I said final point before. Final, final point. Look, I beg the French government and the Australian government and the UK government, for the love of God, do a vaccinator test policy. Don't change history for a bullheaded authoritarian approach. Don't do it. Like, just to let him take a test when he comes to the country, and if he doesn't have COVID, let him play in the event. Is that really such a bad idea. And also, like I said, he had COVID, he beat it, he has natural immunity. Some countries recognize natural immunity like it's vaccine immunity, as you should. But for whatever reason, a lot of countries don't. And I honestly think that's anti-science. It is a pro-science position to say, if you had it and you beat it, you have natural immunity, you're not really, it's okay, you're you're okay. (laughs) So... Uh, clearly I'm filled to the brim with thoughts on this, but there you have it. This is the first time he's speaking out, and man, is that some claim. I'll sacrifice goat status. I'll sacrifice my career just to not get vaccinated. Make of that whatever you will. All right, next. So Joe Manchin uh, is the worst. You guys know this. For the longest time, he was playing footsie with um, Joe Biden and all the other Democrats like, oh, we'll make a deal. I'll be there for Build Back Better. Um, We just got to work out the specifics. He said, oh, pass the traditional infrastructure bill because I promise you we'll work out something on Build Back Better. Well, the progressives folded. They voted on the traditional infrastructure bill. It passed. And now Manchin's like, I'm not for anything. (laughs) Ha ha. And I hate his little folksy BS tap dance where he goes around and he says, who, me, bro? Whatever. I'm like a West Virginia Democrat, and that's different than all, like, you D.C. Democrats. So, like, I'm looking out for the people of West Virginia. Well, based on the polls, we know he's a liar. That's not true. Build Back Better was super popular in West Virginia. Even a majority of Republicans supported it. And then when you go to the specific provisions, people in West Virginia were begging for Build Back Better whether it's lower prescription drug prices, um, expanded Medicare, elder care, universal pre-K, you name it, two years free community college, child tax credit, all these things were so important, and West Virginia wants it. Well, it uh, turns out we're not the only ones who are sick and tired of Joe Manchin and have been going after him relentlessly. Coal miners in West Virginia are sick of him. And his folksy little tap dance, oh, I'm with the working people. My ass cheeks are with the working people, son. So here, more perfect union, went to West Virginia, spoke to coal miners, and they asked Joe Manchin some questions.
7: Mr. Joe Manchin says the Biden administration's Build
8: Back Better Act
4: is dead.
6: I cannot vote to continue with this piece of legislation. I just can't. If
7: you're a uh, people of West Virginia...
6: Don't be drop the man, we're all homeland, we love it. But the future is unpredictable, you know, circles in here. But the future is, the BBB. There's language in that built back better that would uh, provide tax incentives and what have to manufacturers that would bring in low locate uh, factories into the coal fields and uh, laid off coal miners will begin given a theology with regards to drug opportunity. This is a no on this legislation. The coal industry is not going to support the coal field community. I hate saying it worse than the coal miners. not that's Mr. truth. We didn't take this time to try and diversify our area and bring in additional jobs and not be so dependent on the coal mining jobs because they're not going to last forever. So there's a lot of things that go back later What it does help West Virginia, and specifically coal miners. Our state is dying. We need help, and we're pleading for you to get with the program. And uh, this package, this may be a package. We've got jobs, 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 jobs. I think West Virginia alone has 1,500 bridges that have to be totally, totally now, from start to finish, replaced. Imagine the jobs that bleed off of those construction jobs, prevailing wage, union wages, fiscal team in the National Labor Relations Board, gives them more power over uh,
8: when unions are striking and uh, these CEOs and these people who control these
6: unions are held more accountable. I think I think about 340,000 or so. Gilbert. It's one of those uh, benefits, $300 month benefits that they, them they took care of our children and everything. We could make a whole lot better for senior citizens. You know, with the prescription uh, negotiations and the cheaper drugs and stuff. You know, it's not only coal miners, but they're surfing all over this country. And our politicians need to step in and play. We can proud that for a handout. We've worked hard and earned everything we've got. But it seems like we're put on the back burner. Like we don't even exist. All we're asking for is what Joe Biden is trying to offer us and it's big big It's just a simple handshake and even playing field. It's just a win-win-win as I see it for everybody in this state. And I don't have not heard a good reason for nobody has to nobody as to why these senators in these co states, I've not heard a, a reason, especially a good reason, why they're not all for it. Somebody needs to ask some of these Republican senators, why, what's their plan for the Coalfield Americans if not this? The federal Black loan Trust Fund uh, recently took a, a huge cut to the money that was being paid in by coal companies. It was cut like in half. Bill Backbetter would have restored that money. It's too important to just let it die. We got to work on it. We got to get it through. It means too much to West Virginia. But I believe I'm a fiscally responsible and socially compassionate. When you build a house, you start with the foundation. Build Back Better. One Foundation. Build Back Better is not as much uh, for us sitting here at this table. We've all pretty much ran our race. Uh, it's more so about the future of our kids and our grandkids. It's their future. Uh, we're pleading for some help, real, you know. And and you're in a position to where you can do it, you know. If without, what more can I say? You know, if you love the people of West Virginia, prove it.
1: Damn. Now, let me ask you a question. Where is the national media talking to these people? Where's CNN? Where's MSNBC? Where's Fox News? They don't suit the narrative, so they're not being talked to. The narrative is either Joe Biden's a hero for aligning with the Republicans and stopping the big spending. You know, that's the Fox News narrative. But the CNN and the MSNBC narrative are, look, Joe Biden is an honest broker, and he cares about ideology, and he's just centrist, and so he's representing the people of West Virginia. And so this is what he's going to act. This is how he's going to act. We might not like it, but it is what it is. Those narratives are completely bogus. They're dead wrong, according to the polls and according directly to the coal miners themselves. The union turned on him. The union turned on Manchin. They're like, you should vote for this. And you're just not hearing that anywhere. Credit to More Perfect Union, yet again, every time I do a show, it's like I'm giving credit to More Perfect Union because they're doing phenomenal work. They're doing the stuff that mainstream media should be doing. I mean, exact same thing with David Sroda and the Daily Poster. Exact same thing with Jordan Sheridan, who right now is yet again facing another censorship scandal. They gave him a strike on his channel. I'm sure it was a bogus strike. I mean, this is the guy who got on-the-ground footage on January 6th. And then YouTube banned his footage from his own YouTube channel. At the same time, they allow that same footage on CNN and MSNBC. He licensed the footage to them. They're allowed to run it. He's not allowed to run it on YouTube. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. But look, clearly Joe Biden doesn't have the fight in him to take on Mansion. Pathetic, weak, doesn't care enough about the specifics of this to fight for it in any real way. So Biden is part of the problem here, too. I don't want to absolve him. Um, but there is a way out for everybody, and Biden refusing to take it. And, of course, that way out is break out that executive order pen and do everything you possibly can, everything in your legal authority, to get the ball moving and do some good things for the people, and he's not doing it. So the um, American Prospect is a great outlet. David Dayen uh, runs it. And he does this Biden executive order tracker. And there are 77 actions that he can take and he should take. Of those 77, how many has he done? 15. 15. Apparently he's done 15. 12 of them he's done partially. Um, and then the rest, we're waiting. Whether it's eliminating student loan debt, legalizing marijuana. These are things he's not doing. And he's probably not going to do. He's, he can do he can do free college simply through executive order because you just do rolling student loan debt elimination. So anytime somebody takes that takes out student loan debt, look, I'm doing rolling student loan debt elimination, so you actually don't have any student loans. You're good, free college. There you go. The list goes on and on of the stuff that he can do. He's not doing it. So they have nothing, Nobody to blame but themselves. Biden's the problem. He's not a fighter. He doesn't care enough. Mansion is deeply corrupt. You saw in that video the amount of money Mansions taking from all these different special interests and and then doing their bidding. And the narrative is being lost because the media sucks. You guys know the truth. You guys know the reality. These coal miners are 100% correct. And, God, I love their accent so much. (laughs) I'm an accent sucker sometimes, and I love their accent so much. Anyway, there you have it. Credit to More Perfect Union. For the love of God, Joe Biden, grow a spine. And Joe Manchin, there are things I want to say to Joe Manchin, but it would get me banned off YouTube, so I'll bite my tongue. Okay, next. So here's a story that uh, there are so many problems with this. Let me go ahead and throw it up there on screen for you. From the AP, U.S. accuses financial website of spreading Russian propaganda by Noman Merchant, Nomain Merchant. U.S. intelligence officials on Tuesday accused a conservative financial news website with a significant American readership of ampl- amplifying Kremlin propaganda and alleged five media outlets targeting Ukrainians have taken direction from Russian spies. The officials said zero hedge which has 1.2 million Twitter followers, published articles created by Moscow-controlled media that were then shared by outlets and people unaware of their nexus to Russian intelligence. The officials did not say whether they thought Zero Hedge knew of any links to spy agencies and did not allege direct links between the website and Russia. Remember that line. Zero Hedge denied the claims and said it tries to publish a wide spectrum of views that cover both sides of a given story. In a response posted online Tuesday morning, the website said it has never worked, collaborated, or cooperated with Russia, nor are there any links to spy agencies. The officials briefed the Associated Press on the condition of anonymity to discuss sensitive anonymity, sensitive intelligence sources. It was the latest effort by President Joe Biden's administration to release U.S. intelligence findings about Russian activity involving Ukraine as part of a concerted push to expose and influence the moves of Russian President Vladimir Putin. U.S. officials previously accused Putin of planning a false flag operation to create a pretext for a new invasion of Ukraine and detailed what they believed are final stage Russian preparations for an assault. Okay, literally in the article, where the point of the article is zero hedge is Russian distance from information, they have the line that says, uh, "Actually, we're not alleging direct links between the website and Russia at all." So wait, why are you writing the article? The whole point of the article is they're Russian disinformation, and then you admit in the article they're not Russian disinformation. And then, of course, naturally, you get the line about, um, well, we got this from, like, one intelligence agent, and it's on the condition of anonymity. So understand something. This is U.S. media being a stenographer for the U.S. intelligence agencies. You have one source, they're anonymous, they're in the intelligence agencies, and you just uncritically run what they say. So, ironically, you're doing the thing that you're accusing Zero Hedge of doing, just you're doing it with the U.S. government. I know that people are naive and silly and dumb, and oftentimes they think, well, if our God say it, it must be true. But that's not accurate. We know that's not accurate. Look at the war in Iraq. Look at what happened in Syria. Look at what happened in Libya. Look at Russiagate. So many things wrong, 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 all from intelligence sources in the U.S. And there's no reckoning with that. So I, I'm, I'm flabbergasted by this story. They admit in the story that we're not alleging the thing that we're literally alleging and is the whole point of the article. And, of course, most people are just going to read the headline when they're scrolling through Twitter or something, and they're going to go, oh, would you look at that? This is Russian disinformation. We've seen this before. We saw this during the Bernie Sanders campaign. We saw this with the proper not list where they had all these websites. Oh, these websites are influenced by Russia or by, you know, foreign governments and it was truth out and truth dig and naked capitalism and all these lefty independent sites were on the list. And then guess what? Google deranked them in the algorithm and buried them and made them really hard to find. Do you not understand the game that's being played here? The game that's being played is let's rig the algorithm, let's say distrust everything but the official State Department narrative, and let's hammer that home and have dupes fall for it. Now, I, I cannot get through this story. My blood is boiling just thinking about it. We just talked about this. This Russia-Ukraine situation, I've never seen the U.S. media shit the bed and jump the shark worse than this. The last time it was this bad was the Iraq war. I mean, this is worse than Russiagate, worse than Syria and Libya and all the other ones. Bloomberg and a couple other outlets Read an article saying, Russia is invading Ukraine. Big headline, Russia invading Ukraine. They weren't invading Ukraine. That was fake news. That was misinformation. That was disinformation. Then they had to put their tail between their legs, and when it was obvious that wasn't happening, it was, oh, did we say that what happened was, I meant the sun was in my eyes, and me and Craig, and then was we down by the Safeway way, and new phone, who dis? And then, of course, we got so many outlets running with, Ukrainian president says Russia to invade on Wednesday. Russia to invade on Wednesday. Russia to invade on Wednesday. That was a total mistranslation. The Ukrainian president was joking, was saying like, yeah, I'm told by the media Russia's going to invade on Wednesday. Hee hee hee. And Western media just ran with it as if it was factual. You would think that if it's an issue as serious as war, potentially World War III, you'd want to double check. You'd want to be sure before you run that headline. Russia, Russia to invade Ukraine on Wednesday, you're causing a gigantic panic among not just the population, probably among a lot of the officials in government. Like, this incredibly high stakes, and they get it wrong time and time again. Richard Engels of NBC News just ran a puff piece on the Azov Battalion, which are it's a literal neo-Nazi battalion that are on the Ukrainian side. Look, I get it. You guys hate Russia. That's your narrative. Is it too much to ask to not do a puff piece on literal neo-Nazis? Is that too much to ask? Don't tell me about misinformation and disinformation until you look in the mirror, because you guys do it just as bad, if not worse, than anybody else. But of course, look, if you are part of that legacy media, you're just exempt from criticism. You're exempt from big tech crackdowns, from social media censorship, from deplatforming. You're just exempt. You get away with it. And there's no reckoning. And nobody acts like, well, that's a hit on your credibility. It just glossed right over. By the way, they will call literally anything that questions their narrative Russian misinformation or disinformation. My segments on this were all, I tell you guys, both perspectives. I tell you, hey, here's what the West is saying on uh, what's happening with Russia and Ukraine. Here's the Russian perspective on it. Even just giving the Russian perspective is viewed as Russian disinformation. So unless you're just parroting the line, you're going to be accused of it. Do you understand how dishonest and disingenuous and disgusting this is? I really hope you do. They present no evidence. It's one anonymous source. And even in the article, they're like, this thing isn't true, even though it's the whole point of the article. U.S. media is simply an arm of the State Department, mainstream media, and they're an arm of corporate America and the establishment. That's it. And this is why nobody trusts you. This is why everybody's looking in, in other areas. This is why, you know, they bitch and moan about Joe Rogan having a way bigger audience than them. Why do you think he has a bigger audience than you? He's not even a news person. He's a comedian doing a podcast. But they trust a three-hour, authentic, honest conversation uh, much more for guidance in the world than this stuff. And you know what? They're not wrong. I have disagreements with Joe Rogan. I think the Malone and McCullough were terrible and they're wrong about the vaccines and everything. But it's not a surprise people trust Rogan more than they trust you. Look at what you do. You guys lie. You guys do misinformation and disinformation. You guys, you know, there's never any accountability or owning up to it. And at the same time, you are the biggest offenders. You're pointing the finger at others and saying they're misinformation and they're disinformation. And there are actually consequences for the people they point out. I guarantee you that Zero Hedge is gonna be in some way deranked in the algorithm, and you know, they're gonna suffer a big problem in terms of their traffic, it's gonna reduce massively, because this is how this game is played. Now, by the way, I'm not swearing by Zero Hedge. I know the outlet. I don't think they're the best outlet. They're not my favorite outlet, but that doesn't matter. What matters is the people with all the power and all the control are making false accusations as they're actually the bigger offenders. Please tell me at this late date you guys see the game that's being played. Please tell me. Because it's never been more obvious and more transparent. This should disgust you. And unfortunately, I don't think most people have the media literacy to see through this obvious con that's unfolding right in front of our eyes. Okay. So Charlie Kirk, the other day, during the Super Bowl halftime show, um, he got pissed, and he tweeted, the NFL is now the league of sexual anarchy. This halftime show should not be allowed on television. It was a very perplexing tweet for the simple reason that it was a relatively tame halftime show. Uh, This year's halftime show compared to previous years, this was the least sexy. Um, In fact, nobody knew what he was talking about for a while. I saw speculation, maybe he just wrote down this tweet, saved it, and scheduled it to be released, and he didn't actually watch the halftime show, and he didn't actually, like, he should have went in there and deleted the tweet which was scheduled, because it just wasn't that. Well, no, um, he did a long segment on it, he indeed did watch the halftime show, and he really thought it was sexual anarchy, which is crazy. I mean, what, Snoop Dogg was up there dancing, uh, Dr. Dre, um, you know, who else was in it? Uh, Mary J. Blige, uh, 50 Cent. Like 50 Cent, the time he tweeted that it, it was like when 50 Cent was hanging from the ceiling. By the way, 50 Cent gained a lot of weight. He now looks like he's 75 Cent. Um, he was like hanging from the ceiling and rapping in the club. And so when Charlie said this, I quote tweeted him and said, "Is bloated 50 making your pee pee hard? Because I don't, I didn't know what he was talking about. Well, apparently he's referring, I guess, to the lyrics of In the Club, but also the." Um, dancing women. I didn't even see many scantily clad women. I'm sure there were women dancing, but I didn't... Nothing struck me as particularly sexual. Like It, it was just very... More tame compared to previous years, but even the previous years ones, I don't care. I don't think it's a, it's a big deal. Well, anyway, Charlie is not taking the criticism well. He came out and did a long segment responding to the criticism and doubling down. Let's watch a piece of that now.
6: And, look,
8: In all fairness, the Super Bowl halftime show is almost always kind of a, let's just say, celebration of degeneracy. And some people say, oh, Charlie, this wasn't as bad as it was in prior years. I I, I never made that comparison. I was simply judging and talking about 50 cents coming in. And I'm not going to read the lyrics on air, I mean, but come on. If you read In the Club by 50 Cent, I think that all of a sudden you'll be like, oh, well, yeah, that's not meant for network TV. And look, our our culture has fallen so far that we are making excuses for women literally bent over twerking. Uh,
1: he goes on to say, you know, so many people watch this and so many kids watch this. So, what we should have is a situation where the values and virtues of the country are on display for everybody to see. And um, I just I find that such a hilarious thing to say because. Football is the brain-damaged sport. So he's got no problem with, like, the wanton violence and the, the numerous concussions and the numerous torn ACLs and injuries. He's got no issue with that, but, like, just minorly sexual stuff. Just, just a little dash of it, hardly any. And he's like, ooh, where are my pearls? I must, must clutch them. Where's my fainting couch? Hmm. Again, brain damage sport. Now, I'm a red-blooded American. You know, I support football. If people are freely choosing, they know, you know, what the downsides are, and they're freely choosing, God bless, by all means. But, like, to and this is something that's been consistent in U.S. culture. Like, brazen violence is totally allowed and totally acceptable. Whether it's movies where people get massacred, shoot 'em up style, action movies with the hero who commits, you know, brazen acts of violence, whether it's you're a kid and you're playing with a toy gun. I'm not hating. I was a kid. I played with toy guns. But, like, that stuff is glorified and he likes it, but the sex stuff is, like, icky and no. When, obviously, you know, literal violence is a much bigger problem and moral issue than vaguely sexual stuff, mildly sexual stuff. So it's just hilarious he says that. But here's another point, which uh, I guess this escaped Charlie Kirk. What about the cheerleaders? What about the cheer- There are cheerleaders at every football game. And they are dressed more scantily clad than any of the dancers were in that halftime show. Do you, are you against the cheerleaders? Do you not have a problem with the cheerleaders? And look, you can't help but say it. Maybe it's unfair. Maybe it's not. You guys can be the judge of it. But the majority of the cheerleaders are usually white. And the, a lot of the people dancing were not. And it, of course it was hip-hop, you know, hip-hop and R&B. And Eminem was there, too, but, you know, he was one of however many performers. And so people were offended by that. I saw them responding to Candace Owens. Candace Owens said she liked the halftime show. And then a lot of her people were, like, basically saying, like, not enough white people. The other point is, he says, like, what about the lyrics? Look, I'm sure you guys have been around kids. I have, you know, wonderful um, nephews and a niece. I can say with absolute certainty, kids don't know what they're saying in that. Most of the lyrics, when you're singing them, it, it, they don't immediately land. And even if they did, there's just a lot of they don't know what that is, and they're not inquiring when they're young enough. You know what I mean? Maybe there's some at a borderline age, but they're in that borderline age and they hear it. If that's not the worst thing in the world. You know? Uh, it's just it's, his outrage meter is totally broken. It is. And the final point is, these are the guys who scream about free speech and free expression and cancel culture. They say they're pro-free speech and free expression. They say they're against cancel culture. And then this is Charlie Kirk, like, canceling anything that's even, like, 2% sexual. So, bro, you're the snowflake. You're the triggered one. This is the old school, like, you know, 1950s-style conservatism, the, the uber-Christian type of conservatism. This doesn't land with anybody anymore, man. It doesn't. It doesn't. In many ways, a lot of people on the right have graduated, especially in the post-Trump era. People have graduated to like, okay, we're going to sort of let go on on like the anti-gay stuff. We're going to let go on the, the purity stuff and, and, and prude stuff. They just let go. I mean, come on, Donald Trump, Melania Trump, Donald Trump's life. I mean, there's all these scantily clad pictures of Melania everywhere, and Anybody on the left who would attack her for it, would be like, okay, relax. It's not that big a deal. Who cares? And the right obviously was fine with it. They voted for the guy, and they love Melania. So, but it's just the wires are, are, are messed up in his head. The outrage meter is broken. He's stuck in a different era, and uh, he's a mess. You're not, this isn't an argument that appeals to anybody. And I don't even know to what extent he truly believes it. Cause like I just said, you're overlooking the cheerleaders, but you're arguing about this. You're talking about the values and virtues of the country, but you're fine with brain damage, but not okay with slightly risque dancing? Whatever, Charlie. You do you, man, but not a good look to say the least. All right. So there's a guy by the name of James Lindsay. And James Lindsay has sort of created this path for himself as, you know, one of the anti-woke guys. Like, his whole political identity and public persona is built around wokeness bad, which, look, I'm a leftist, but I'm a critic of wokeness, too. Everybody knows that. I talk about it all the time. I don't like crackdowns on free speech, free expression, um, I think sometimes people can get a little silly with joke policing and things of that nature. But I have things in context and perspective that doesn't dominate all of my commentary. Not everything comes back to that. And, um, you know, I, what, do, what do I care most about? I care about the working class. I care about economics. I want to raise wages. I want to give people more vacation time. I want to have universal health care in the U.S. I just want to create a happy, healthy, prosperous country where everybody's got a shot. You know, not equality of outcome, equality of opportunity, and a reasonable floor from which people can, you know, start and live their lives. So, James Lindsay, this is, in my experience, this is one of the first times I've seen him sort of dip his toe a little bit outside of the wokeness lane. So, he's going to try to talk about, you know, global politics here. And I've now watched this clip three or four times, so this is like, you know, my fourth or fifth time watching it. I'm gonna try my absolute best to be charitable and to listen to these comments in context and try to make sense of it, but it's all over the place, and this is like Olympic-level word salad. Let's watch and then I'll respond.
0: Another that they
8: had to incorporate fascism to make communism work, and so how did they do this? Well, Mao did his thing. The CCP runs China into a disaster. A couple of years later, you have Deng Xiaoping
0: working with Kissinger and so on, and they open up the markets to China. But it's all at the pleasure of the party. It's
8: all state capitalism, which is by definition fascism. So what do you have there? You have a communism with fascism inside of it. Communo-fascism. So what is the dialectical opposite of communo-fascism? It's a fascism with communism inside of it. Fascio-communism. So you have East Asia. But we just don't have Oceania to always be at war with East Asia yet. So if you make China into this behemoth, a communism with fascism running inside of it, so that it solves the production problem, of the Soviet disaster of communism because it has now an open market that's running state capitalism, but still very wealth-generating market. Mm-hmm. And then you can create the opposite of that in the West. If you can create a fascist oligarchy that decides to, uh, sure, the, the people on the top are going to be the lords and ladies of the new aristocracy, and we are going to be the serfs mined for our data and our pod while we enjoy our mealworms and crickets. But
0: it'll be equitable. So if you take that fascist structure and stick a communism inside of it, and then those are the
8: two world powers, not exactly enemies, but frenemies, Mm -hmm. a communism with fascism inside next to a fascism with communism inside, and you let those things run next to each other, the natural process of the dialectic will eventually fuse all of it, and what you'll end up with is the kingdom. You'll end up with communism that works this time, and I think that that's the program. And so they are definitely using the race Marxists because the Marxists, are extraordinarily destabilizing, but the people who are funding this, the people who are dumping millions upon millions of dollars, billions of dollars into Greek theory to drag it out of the university where it should have just kind of languished because it's stupid. It got funded out of the university, that's how. It didn't spontaneously get out of the university. Bags and bags and bags of cash got dumped into fueling these movements, especially around the Occupy Wall Street time to protect the banks, and so the fascist with the communist inside was born. And that's the objective. And they, because they, this is their magic, is their faith. They believe that if you put those two opposites next to each other, and they're the only two opposites, that eventually the dialectical process will average it all out, but raise it up to a higher level. The Marxist works on a sublate.
1: One of my pet peeves is when somebody's trying to explain something. And instead of being as clear and concise and punchy and short as possible, they do the opposite. They make it as wordy as possible, as convoluted and obscure as possible. Because that strikes me as a lack of clarity of thought. Like it's almost verbose on purpose. It seems like it's verbose on purpose. So look, I told you I listened to this a number of times. I'm going to try to transcribe what he said here, but wish me luck. So he's saying China is communo-fascism, America is fascio-communism. We're going to get to these these terms and these definitions in a second, so bear with me. And he says ultimately. The natural process of the dialectic is going to fuse all of it. And my guess is he's trying to say it fundamentally is a global plot where we have fascio-communism or communo-fascism that runs all of us with like a global government thing. And he's trying to discuss what he thinks is the process that gets us to that point. That's what I think he's trying to say. Now, nobody, even if they're a huge James Lindsay fan, can watch this segment and tell me, I'm not being as charitable and kind as possible in trying to interpret what the hell he's saying. Now, let's start breaking it down, because that's the more important point. The definition of communism, a political theory derived from Karl Marx advocating class war and leading to a society in which all property is publicly owned and each person works and is paid according to their abilities and needs. I don't think there's any real communist nation in the country. All property is publicly owned and each person works and is paid according to their abilities and needs. Fascism, definition of fascism, a form of far-right authoritarian ultranationalism characterized by dictatorial power. Forcible suppression of opposition and strong regimentation of society and the economy that rose to prominence in the early 20th 20th century in Europe. So that's the definition of fascism. What are the the actual different countries in this conversation? Well, the United States, I think it's fair to call the United States an oligarchy. And he does use that word once in that rant, although sort of a side point because broadly he thinks the U.S. is fascist communism and China is communal fascism. The U.S. I would describe as an oligarchy. It, it functions as an oligarchy. You have corporations and billionaires that effectively bought the government, owned the government, rigged the laws and the rules in their favor. We are, on paper, a constitutional republic and a representative democracy, but I think, functionally speaking, just like that Princeton study it came out years ago, found about a decade ago, we are functionally more of an oligarchy. I think that's the best word to describe the U S you could use kleptocracy. Um, You could use it. It's certainly a version of capitalism, right? But I would say oligarchy is the best word for the U S when it comes to China. I think uh, the most accurate description, they're communist in name. They're not functionally communist. They're more state capitalist. So it's sort of, I would just call like authoritarian capitalism is probably the most straightforward way to describe China. Where his whole theory breaks down is this notion that there's going to be the fusion of it through the natural dialectic process, and there's going to be some one world government. We are so far from anything resembling a one world government, and I don't think we would ever get there. The League of Nations was a horrendous failure. The United Nations is an absolute joke. We violate international law, and ignore international law on a daily basis, in every way imaginable, with our illegal wars, with our sanctioning of medicine going into Iran, which is leading to deaths, with what we're doing in Yemen right now, with what Biden's doing to Afghanistan, starving the country effectively. The idea that there's going to be some fusion – I mean, this is Alex Jones territory, right? Like, there's going to be the NWO, the New World Order, or what they used to say, Glenn Beck used say, was Agenda 21 was coming, now they talk about the Great Reset is coming – You don't need to get to that next level of conspiracy to talk about all the problems in the system. The conspiracy is open. It's open. The conspiracy is that the billionaires and the corporations effectively run everything in the United States of America. That's the conspiracy. And all the decisions are made for the benefit of the billionaires and the corporations. To say it's fascial communism in the U.S.? What? (laughs) No, it's not. And, you know, in some ways it's sort of a contradiction in terms there. That's not to say that there aren't, there's no such thing as an authoritarian left government. There is. That's a real thing. Um, but that's not what we're talking about here. Fascio-communism is not what the U.S. is. Communofascism is not what China is. And he's all over the place with these really convoluted, weird terms and theories. And it is confusing, maybe on purpose. And look, this guy has made... He's he has made a habit of this. I've I read some of his tweets, and his tweets are always you scratching your head, like, I don't even really think that makes sense to you, bro. They'll so bring in these different philosophers and say, and then link it to some political theory or economic theory, and everybody who reads it's gonna be like, what? Some people get tricked and think, oh, well, he's just a genius, and you just don't understand his high-minded descriptions. Um, the other part, which uh, you know, again, there are parts where he totally loses me. He talks about. The natural process of the dialectic will fuse it all together. No, money rules everything. That's the way it works. There is no – it's not just through open dialogue and the dialectic is that that's what eventually fuses everything together. And the U.S. and China are not really – I mean, we are more enemies than frenemies. We are. I mean, we trade with them, and that's probably the only thing that stops us from being outwardly hostile. Um, but yeah, the Belt Road Initiative, for example, China's expanding. The U.S. doesn't like that. We're the country that has somewhere between 700 and 900 military bases around the world. There are disputes now over certain places. We're concerned about the thing in Taiwan. There is not going to be a fusion of the two in like the, you know, this like NWO approach. But then he says, the, he brings up the race Marxists. Okay, but that's not a thing. Marxism is about class. <laughs> you say race Marxist, that's sort of a contradiction in terms. There are people who can be Marxist and also buy into one level or another of identity politics, but there's nothing inherent to Marxism. Race Marxism is not a thing. Uh, and he brings up Occupy Wall Street. Like, are they are they complicit in a negative sense with your grand theory here? Because I got news for you. Occupy Wall Street was one of the forces trying to push back against the influence of big money in politics and corporate power and uh, billionaire control, they were pushing back against that. They were part of the solution. And I don't know. Maybe he is saying they're part of the solution. I don't know. I'm trying to be as charitable as possible here. But, guys, it, it doesn't, what he's saying here doesn't make sense. It's, it's really ultimately a bunch, bunch of mumbo-jumbo. Communo-fascism and fascio-communism and the natural process of the dialectic will fuse it together. And I love how Glenn Beck is sitting there pretending his profile. My God. My See, he takes like two steps outside of the wokeness bad uh, arena, and you get this sort of stuff. <laughs> Somehow the race Marxists and Occupy Wall Street uh, feed into the picture, and they're destabilizing, and, but the natural process of the dialectic will give us fascio communism and com- communo-fascism. and No. The real issue, the real problem is oligarchy and imperialism. Corporate power billionaire wealth and the iron hold on government to the point that they exacerbate all problems like income and wealth inequality climate change you name it so there you have it there is gonna be no fusing of communal fascism and fascio communism the conspiracy is open the conspiracy is what I just described and uh, I would a little bit of advice here for Mr. Lindsay If I were you, I would try to simplify everything down and explain your theory in as straightforward way as possible. Don't complicate it with weird new terms you made up and pretend like it's profound when really it's massively confused at best. All right, next. Fox News, particularly the show Fox and Friends here, uh, they were talking about, I think the Canadian trucker protest and they made a point about the US and how we reacted to the pandemic. And this is a hoot.
7: You know, I also think that the United States and Canada, they have been, um, really throughout this pandemic, it's sort of mirrored what a socialist state would look like. Intrusive. Um, We really have seen what would happen to this country if we stop caring about freedom and democracy and let the socialist Bernie Sanders wing that is festering in the Democratic Party take over. Every single time that has happened, the same thing happens. Oligarchies form, a ruling class form, people who say you have to do something but don't follow the rules themselves. Why? Because they are in charge. Therefore, they think that they are better than you. I mean, that's, that is the definition of what happened throughout this whole pandemic. And that's why these hardworking people in Canada and the U.S. are so frustrated. Their goals are that they want to work. They want to put food on the table. And I'd love to hear Justin Trudeau answer that question um, that that six year old grandfather asked and said, what would you do if somebody was threatening your family's livelihood?
1: Imagine saying the U.S. went full socialist during the pandemic. Imagine believing that. Imagine believing that. That's not even close to true. Now, look, there are certain things that there is, like, vibrant debate and disagreement on the left as to what is the proper leftist approach to dealing with the pandemic, what's the proper socialist approach to dealing with the pandemic. There are plenty of socialists who are pro-lockdown. There's pr- plenty of socialists who are anti-lockdown. There's plenty of socialists who are pro-vaccine mandate. There's plenty of, plenty of socialists who are anti-vaccine mandate. Like, so that stuff, it's a little bit open to debate and discussion as to what is the, you know, the true leftist or true socialist position in dealing with the pandemic. But there are certain things that are not open to debate and discussion. So, for example, a, a full socialist response to the pandemic, for one thing, would have been universal health care, definitely, 100%, without a doubt, for sure. We don't have universal health care in this country. We don't have it at all one of the best things was the vaccine being free but our health care more generally is not free there are people who got you know tens of thousands of dollars worth of COVID bills we covered some of the stories on this show you know COVID healthcare care bills so that w- and by the way if we did that that would have been glorious i would have wanted the socialist reaction to the pandemic so universal health care for one thing another thing is ubi we wouldn't have done the one-time checks a couple times it would have been universal basic income, at least in perpetuity until the end of the pandemic. That would have been a socialist reaction. That would have been wonderful. You know, paid sick leave. We don't even have paid sick leave in this country. You're going to say the U.S. went socialist in reaction to the pandemic. We don't even have paid sick leave. Are you kidding me? That would have been a socialist reaction, and that would have been wonderful. You know, the other thing you could argue is not just basic public health measures would be part of a socialist response, uh, but it would have been more at the national level, it would have been more at the federal level. It wouldn't have been delegated to the states to make their own decisions on certain things. There would have been more national leadership and guidance and direction. So this idea, again, putting aside whether being pro-lockdown or anti-lockdown is socialist or lefty or vaccine mandate or no-vaccine mandate is socialist or lefty, because I think there is debate on that, and I don't even know what I would describe as the true leftist position on that front. I tell you what I think of it, of those different positions, but, you know, that doesn't mean I'm the representative of the one true leftist or the one true socialist. But certainly, universal health care, UBI, uh, paid sick leave, basic public health measures at a federal level, that would have been a proper socialist reaction. And we didn't do universal health care. We didn't do UBI. We didn't do paid sick leave. And the public health measures were scattershot, and it went state by state. It wasn't, more, it wasn't really at the federal level. So my ass cheeks, man. This socialist response to the pandemic. If we had a socialist response to the pandemic, way more people would be alive and way fewer people would be struggling economically. They just say anything on Fox. Anything that is like nominally a right-wing argument or a Republican argument, they just say it. Don't, Don't need any evidence, don't need any data, don't need any theory. Just spew it. Just say it. U.S. is now full socialist. I wish, I wish You know, giving workers more control in the workplace, not just having some semblance of political democracy, but also having workplace democracy. That'd be wonderful. Give people more autonomy, more sovereignty, more freedom and and choice over their own life. U.S. went full socialist in response to the pandemic. If only, you weirdos, if only. Final story of the day, y'all. Here we go. So there is um, a supply line crisis that we've talked about a number of times on this show. That's one of the main things leading to inflation. It's also monopoly power leading to inflation. Corporate greed is leading to inflation. There's this misnomer that's tied to big spending. It is not. Every economist I've talked to has said no uncertain terms. It is not the spending. Um, But there's been a lot of pressure put on truckers because of the supply chain crisis. And um, we've seen articles now talking about, you know, they're – Stretched in, they're working as hard as they can. And what a lot of people don't know is just how screwed many truckers are in this country. Uh, there are some truckers who work as independent contractors. And what happens is they're promised this like rent-to-own thing, where it's like you will eventually own the truck, but you're like you're going to work as a trucker. You're an independent contractor. You have to pay for whatever the gas, the repairs on the truck. You have to pay to rent the truck to buy it eventually. And so what happens is, at the end of the day, a lot of these truckers work full-time, and they either make a little bit of money or they even lose money. So this is obscene. And now some truckers are going to try to unionize to fight back and make a decent living. So let's watch More Perfect Union. did a great segment on this, talking to the tr- truckers. Take a look.
9: compañía es una compañía, eh, miserable que no tiene... Eh... Un para it is
7: heartbreaking. I have seen drivers show me their settlement statements where in any given week they may have owed money to the
9: company. In other words, it says negative $200. Or five hours that pay. They have worked a 40-50 hour week, but because
7: the deductions for their truck payment, for their repairs, for their maintenance, for their insurance, that week was more than they earned. They owe money to the company. It's it's indentured servitude and it's worst, it's modern day sharecropping.
9: independientes como empleados.
7: Misclassification is a crisis for port truck drivers. What misclassification is, is where employers, in order to increase their profits, they take their drivers here, who under the law are in fact employees, and they misclassify them treatment es independent contractors
9: la experiencia que he trabajado en otras compañías como empleado, los pues tenemos los beneficios como es de, de deshabili o desempleo pagamos seguros sociales para que tengamos un retiro uh, en, en la vejez del seguro social esta compañía nos, no nos da esa oportunidad nos sancionan ellos nos corren entonces en la práctica somos empleados pero And this is
7: going to be sending the message loud and clear to other employees that you do not have to put up with this antics of your employers who try to misclassify you as independent contractors when you are employees. You have the right to a union.
9: se han enfermado, incluso yo me he enfermado por el COVID el año pasado, estuve tres meses fuera de la compañía y no pude recibir los beneficios que el Estado desempleó o deshabilite. La compañía no me pagó. Por tres años yo no tuve salario. Y, y eso es una violación a, lo, a los derechos del trabajador. O sea, nos niega el derecho de decir, ¿cómo que tío? Yo puedo ver aquí a mis compañeros que tienen más de 65 años todavía trabajando porque no podemos tener el derecho al, al, al retiro, con ningún retiro digno. Ellos dicen que tienen que son una compañía fuerte, pero con mucho sentido humano. Entonces, llévenlo a la práctica, porque en realidad ustedes son muy inhumanos. No pagándonos, por ejemplo, desde que llegamos, tenemos que inspeccionar el camión, y e averiguar que el camión esté listo. Cuando recogemos la carga tenemos que hacer una inspección. Todo ese tiempo no nos lo pagan.
7: of employee status standards these drivers have been found to be employees so it is clear the writing's on the wall SPO may try to fight it but these workers are going to win their right to to a union election and based on what I've seen they're going to win their right to a union and a good fair contract
1: imagine working full-time and losing money that's exactly what was happening with a lot of these truckers out there trying to make a good, honest living, working full time. Sometimes they make a little money. Sometimes they flat out lose money. Look, call it what it is. This is modern day indentured servitude. And so the economy is working on on the exploitation of these truckers. Truckers are crucially important. And the whole economy is built on their exploitation. I mean, it's built on the exploitation of a number of people. Remember when we covered that story of the literal modern-day slave ring that was busted, what was it, in Georgia? Remember that? I mean, this is the whole point. Like, the owner class is extracting the surplus value from the workers. That's what's happening. That's what's happening. And all these people want is a decent, fair wage, some health care, some paid time off. And don't tell me we can't afford it. We absolutely can't afford it. Corporate profits are at a record high right now, record high. They're using the inflation as an excuse to jack up prices across the board. We absolutely can't afford it. Don't tell me we can't afford it. We absolutely get, the companies can't afford it. We just need to have rules and regulations in place that mandates people get a fair wage. And beyond that, you need unions to fight for the working class. Collective bargaining works. We just need collective bargaining and then fair rules and regulations and referees to make sure that the owner class doesn't pull any tricky maneuvers trying to undercut their workers. I mean, look, it speaks for itself working full-time, losing money, that's insane. This independent contractor categorization, maybe in some limited circumstances, it makes sense. But the trick now from corporations is to define workers as independent contractors so as to avoid calling them employees. And if you avoid having them uh, in the category of employee, then, you know, no unemployment, no disability, no rights that go hand-in-hand with being an employee. So it's sort of like a trick. Because everybody hears, oh, I'd rather be an independent contractor than employee. It sounds better. But in reality, it's actually much, much worse, and you're much more exploited. Just ask, you know, their Uber drivers and, you know, people who work in industries where they're they're, uh, always viewed as independent contractors. Jesus, man. This is terrible. It's terrible. Solidarity with these workers. I hope they win their union, and I hope that this new trend of unions now – getting more powerful and going on the offense, I hope it stays around because clearly it's absolutely vital and necessary and crucial because the government's not looking out for us. The companies are not looking out for us. And so if workers unionize and fight back, at least that's one type of power for the working class that is a sleeping giant and can awaken and can get us back to some semblance of reason and rationality in terms of how we structure the economy. All right, guys. On that note, I am out, y'all. I love you very much. I'll talk to everybody soon. Have a great rest of your day. Peace.